So, how much do teams and managers really matter to fantasy owners? We'll ask Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 23rd. It's show number 24 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports about managers and teams, about Matt Zanino, Christian Yelich, and other players, about trading hell, about which dazed and confused character Jeff Samarja would be, some thumbs up and thumbs down for players the rest of the way, and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Freddie Freeman's position change, Kyle Schwarber's demotion, the Marlins' closer situation, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Oakland catcher Stephen Vogt's demotion, Seattle pitching prospect Andrew Moore's promotion, J.J. Hardy's range of motion, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon reports on the A's pitching prospect A.J. Puck. In our playing time commentary, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the pending return of Wilson Ramos and a possible call-up for Mets shortstop prospect Ahmed Rosario. In our frequent flyers comment, Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky also looks at Ahmed Rosario as well as Seattle starting pitcher Andrew Moore, who had a terrific debut on Thursday night. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Arizona right-hander Zach Greinke, Cubs left-hander John Lester, and other pitchers going this weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about how to explain the surge in home runs. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The All-Star break is on the horizon. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our show, as usual, our League Watch News reports. We have Jock Thompson standing by with the American League. And leading off, it's going to be the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here and a week full of news. Oh, was there ever. Uh, the first thing I'd like to talk about, Nick, is not really news uh, so much. Freddie Freeman's on the DL. He's probably going to be out there at least another month to recover from that left wrist he broke uh, in mid-May. But the team has already announced that they're talking about moving Freeman to third base so they can keep first baseman Matt Adams, who was acquired in the interim, and they want to keep him in the lineup. He's as hot as heck. Uh, Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today. Can this be true? They'd be moving an all-star first baseman to third? Well, you know, and Freeman, is, Freeman has already said that he'll, he'll be back after the all-star break and will come back as a third baseman. So he's willing to, to take the plunge. Uh, you know, certainly an interesting kind of thing and kind, the kind of thing you like to see from a ball player uh, with, with that kind of a move that's going to help the team. Uh, Freeman was a third baseman throughout his high school career, so it's not an unfamiliar position for him. And, and that move is just a testimony to how well Matt Adams had been playing. I mean, Adams had been tearing the cover off the ball. Uh, over 31 days entering play on June 21st, 307 expected batting average, 183 PX. So uh, Adams is really... Uh, added a lot to the Braves lineup and certainly being able to keep him in there uh, would, if he can continue as hot as he's been, uh, would would add something to the Braves' attack. Uh, Freeman was playing at MVP level before he got hurt. 
339 expected batting average, 224 power index, even four steals. So, uh, you know, you, you've got an MVP caliber player coming back, uh, willing to move across the diamond. That's certainly a uh, an interesting story. Third base is way further to the left on the defensive spectrum than first base is. Uh, the f- defensive spectrum, for listeners who might not be familiar with it, has shortstop, a catcher way over at the far left is the most difficult position, then moves across. And first base is way over on the right. It's the easiest position on the field to play. With the added defensive responsibilities of playing third base, and it's been a while since Freddie Freeman's done it and never at the major league level, should owners be worried that it might weigh on Freeman's offensive output? I think so, and I think you've got to worry about he's coming back from a uh, from a wrist uh, injury. Uh, you've got to worry about how that's going to affect his offensive output. So I would not expect those MVP-type levels, uh, playing levels, production levels, to continue at any event. It would be a surprise if he continued at the level he was when he, when he got injured. And the defensive responsibilities have got to weigh on you. I mean, it's something, you know, you want to do a good job. It's something you haven't done for a while. So I would think it would uh, tend to depress offensive production at least a tiny bit. I'm not in the National League. I play American League only, of course. But, Nick, I think this might be a buying opportunity for players in National League and mixed leagues in this regard. There might be owners who overestimate how important that change is going to be. Now, I I think the risk thing is more important, uh, frankly, than the uh, defensive change. But if somebody in your league is thinking or talking about or you can persuade them that uh, the defensive change could cause an offensive decline, maybe you could steal Freddie Freeman for, you know, 90 cents on the dollar. I think that's a possibility. I mean, Freddie Freeman is certainly going to be valuable when he comes back uh, and, and someone worth owning in whatever fantasy league you're in. So... Uh, that is a good uh, per, a good potential trading strategy, I think, yes. Nick, I know you're a Kyle Schwarber owner in some of your teams, and I wonder how surprised you were when the Cubs optioned him to Class AAA Iowa on Thursday. Uh, they say it's not going to be a lengthy demotion, but <laughs> Tom Kephart covered the story for Baseball HQ in his Playing Time Today coverage. What is going on with this Kyle Schwarber move? Well, you know, Kyle Schwarber, uh, Kyle Schwarber has been awful for the entire year. And so they're sending him down to try to get him straightened out. And, and that's probably a good move. I mean, we've got a guy here. I, you know, it was interesting. I heard somebody, some, some commentator not too long ago say, we really don't know who Kyle Schwarber is yet. And I think that's true. You know, we've got a guy who can hit massive home runs, uh, can go on an explosion and be a huge, uh, offensive plus. And at the same time is in the, now been in this lengthy slump, uh, where he's, he's, uh, the, the massive home runs are still there. But uh, when you're hitting 179 or something like that or whatever it was, I mean, that's just not going to cut it. So it's one of those situations where I think the Cubs made the right move. The question now is, how long will he be down? Uh, it's, it's sort of similar to the Mike Zanino situation, isn't it, in the, in the American League, where Zanino was sent down and was down, what, all of a week and a half before he was tearing up the league and was back. So it depends on how quickly I think the hitting coaches can figure out what it is that's causing a problem for Schwarber uh, and how soon they'll be able to bring him back. Right now, the playing time, Nick, is being uh, distributed between Albert Amora and Ian Happ. Is that likely to continue? They've recently been splitting time in center field, and with Schwarber down, uh, Happ will see more time in left field, allowing more center field time for Almora. Almora's been very hot, uh, raising his batting average and his walk rate during June, uh, not showing the kind of uh, moderate power line drive stroke he showed in 112 at bats in 2016 and hitting ground balls at a heavier rate so uh, not quite where he was a year ago but still hitting fairly well uh, but more patience than he did a season ago 
And uh, what about Ian Happ? Boy, he was the news there for a week or so, a hot start. Yeah, definitely. Shown, shown elite power, uh, 276 expected batting average, uh, despite a, uh, a contact rate below 65% uh, since he was promoted in mid-May. And that, that low contact rate, of course, tells us that uh, his hot start is, is not likely to continue. It's uh, 34% home run per fly is unsustainable, so you want to be aware that that home run pace is going to come down. But Ian Happ has certainly gotten off to a good start. Yeah, I think uh, Ian Happ might be one of those guys you try to move off your roster by via trade because I between the uh, expected batting average, that high home run per fly ball rate, and this playing time question, I don't know. Uh, Ian Happ looks like a very risky proposition to me. Uh, our projections at BaseballHQ.com, Nick, have Happ picking up about 15% playing time, but still only being a 5 or $6 player for the rest of the season. Um, maybe eight more home runs, but a batting average under 250 Almora also gets a 15% upgrade. Also a $5 valuation, fewer home runs, but a slightly higher average than Hap. And Schwarber's playing time has been cut by 30%, so our analysts uh, don't think that Schwarber's going to be back very quickly, and when he's back, he's going to have to battle for playing time. His projection has taken a knock all the way down to that same $5, $6 zone, a BA even lower than Hap's. And we should, Nick, note that Jason Hayward has also gone on the DL with a hand injury, opening up yet more playing time in the outfield. And I thought that might mean playing time for Happ and Almora, but the Cubs uh, fooled everybody here, instead calling up Mark Zagunas, a prospect, and they started him in right field. What's the story on this Mark Zagunas? Uh, Nick Richards covered Zagunas in the Daily Call-Up Report. Uh, baseball HQ preseason number five, Cubs prospect, 24 years old, a former catcher, making a switch to the outfield. Does that sound familiar? It does. Good power this year at AAA Iowa. 11 home runs and 213 at-bats. Uh, the power might be a sign of growing strength as he as he uh, gets a, a bit older, uh, but more line drive gap power than fly ball power. Uh, so the home runs might be a thing for the for the PCL rather than uh, going to carry over to the major. But a good on-base guy, nearly 400 across his minor league career, and a really good defensive outfielder. Uh, 275 at-bats, 401 on-base percentage, 441 slugging in... Uh, 1,196 minor league at-bats. That's not bad at all. Uh, having a nice season in, in 2016 at double-A AA and triple-A before he broke his foot. Combined 10 home runs, 49 RBIs, and a 288 batting average in 422 plate appearances. Good plate discipline, 12% walk rate, contact rate around 80%. Picked right back up this year with a batting average a bit low, but uh, has good speed, especially for a former catcher. Could steal a dozen or so bases and solid in the outfield. Uh, maybe only up until Ben Zobris is back, so that's the other the other wild card in this entire picture. Uh, but this should only be the start of uh, Zagunis's big league career. Well, as I said, Nick, he started his first day up in the big leagues, went in, into right field, and he went 0 for 5, so not one of those uh, storybook finishes you hope to have when you're the first day in the big leagues, but I guess he was probably pretty nervous, too. Uh, you mentioned Ben Zobris is going to be coming back before too long. Schwarber's demotion, apparently, according to the team, is not for the long term. How many outfielders can the Cubs cram onto their roster? Something's got to give here. Yeah, it does definitely. I mean, you can't carry you can't carry a roster of twelve outfielders in, in a you know twenty five man roster. So, I you know it's something it does have to give. And I I imagine we're going to see some shuffling going on. Somebody's going down probably when Zobris comes back. Uh, and as we said, we'll see how long it takes to get Schwarber straightened out. Personally, I think uh, sooner or later, Schwarber's got to get traded to the American League. He's a designated hitter if ever I saw one. Uh, as Drubal Cabrera coming back from the DL to the New York Mets, but maybe not to play in his uh, previous shortstop position. What's going on in Queens? Well, you know, what, 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 the reason that there's talk about Cabrera not returning to shortstop 
is he's had some defensive struggles at shortstop this year. Uh, 11 errors th- so far, uh, so not handling the position as well, perhaps, as he has in the past, as well as the Mets would like him to be. So the talk right now is that Cabrera could come back at second base. Uh, they've been struggling a bit at second base anyway, so that might be his way to slot him in. And for the time being, at least, Jose Reyes would continue playing shortstop. Yikes. Uh, what about the chances of calling up Ahmed Rosario? Well, you know, that's the thing all the commentators keep clamoring for, and the Mets say they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it, so we'll see what happens. I think they are going to call him up. Ryan Bloomfield will be covering Ahmed Rosario today on Baseball HQ Radio in his playing time commentary. Alex Becky also looking at Rosario in frequent flyers. Let's go over to another uh, shortstop, second base type guy in Milwaukee. Last year's breakout star, Jonathan VR, who's on the DL currently, is reportedly getting ready to go out on his rehab assignment. But listen to this. While he's been out... Replacement second baseman Eric Sogard has been absolutely on fire. Tom Kephart covered the story for playing time today, and the question everybody's wondering about, is VR getting Wally pipped by Eric Sogard? Well, he might be for the moment. I mean, you know, Sogard's, his, his first 400 bats since being promoted in May, 458 on base percentage. I mean, how do you sit down a guy who's, who's getting on base almost half the time? You can't. If you're a manager, you've got to play him. So at this point, uh, Sogard came into the, uh, into the lineup as a uh, as a, an injury replacement. He's found regular playing time because of the injuries, and he swung a hot bat and displayed great on-base skills. 15% walk rate, 86% contact rate, 29% line drive rate. There's no question that the guy is absolutely killing the ball right at the moment. Uh, some of the skills are largely consistent with his previous history, uh, but he's also displaying some skills he's not displayed before. His contact rate matches his career level. Line drive rate likely unsustainable. We look at his line drive rate and uh, over the past few seasons, 25%, 24%, 29%, or 22%. So 29% seems 4 to 5% high. Uh, that's likely to come back down. Um, also, his, his uh, newfound patience and power. And we wonder, is that going to continue? His current walk rate is nearly double his career walk rate of 8%. Um, current power metrics, including power index and home run per fly, are real outliers in comparison to his previous levels. I mean, this is a guy who's 31 years old, who has three f- almost full-time seasons of almost of 300 plus at bats, one two ninety-one. But so it's not as though Sogard is someone completely new to the major leagues. So we have some idea of who he is, and at 31, he's kind of at the end of a growth spurt if he was going to have one. Um, the home ballpark in Milwaukee is, is dramatically better than where he was playing in Oakland, and that could certainly make a difference. Uh, more conducive to home runs, especially for left-handed hitters. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's a real possibility that what we've seen in terms of power from Sogard thus far has been a fluke, and we're not talking about huge power. Three home runs at 112 at-bats compared to one in 372 a year ago, but he's still not hitting the ball at, uh, at a Cody Bellinger rate. Um, VR, in contrast, is? is showing a contact rate, expected batting average, hit rate below his career levels, uh, 213 batting average at the time he was sidelined. Uh, strong 2013 looks like it might have been a career year. So uh, hard to know what's going to happen at second base. I think probably they're going to play the hot hand is what they're going to do uh, as we can, they continue into the, uh, the dog days of summer here. and uh, We may see some shifting and some changing going on in terms of who's on second in uh, Milwaukee. 
I will just say this, Nick. I wouldn't be running out to try to get Eric Sogard on my roster. I've lived through that before in American League formats, and boy, I know that there's the park effect, and I know that he's maybe changed his approach and walking a bit more and hitting more line drives and everything. I just don't buy it. I, I, I just don't think that you get an old dog and he learns that many new tricks all at once. Uh, Jonathan VR, you mentioned uh, – we talked about the Freddie Freeman situation moving around on the defensive spectrum. VR struggled defensively this year because they put him in his third different infield position since he joined the club. He split time in 2016 between short and third. Now this year they moved him to second because they wanted to make room for Arcia. Could it be that VR is struggling because they just won't settle on a position for this guy? Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. We're talking about a 26-year-old ball player at this point who doesn't have the, the depth of experience that a lot of guys have and just really one full-time season, and that was last year. So that could certainly be a reason for the struggles, uh, and it may, it may take him a while to get, to, to get straightened out. Uh, VR is the kind of guy that if, uh, if he's been being dumped in a National League uh, because of this, this uh, apparent change, especially in a keeper league, he's the kind of guy I would jump on. Oh, me too. I, I always like those opportunities where you get a guy who has – uh, a terrific season like VR had, then he follows it up with a bit of a slow start. If you can get him for you know fifty cents on the dollar, I think especially if you're trying to chase the leaders in your league, you could do worse than grabbing Jonathan VR because who knows? Maybe he follows up uh, in the second half this year with some kind of sort of match for what he did all year last year. You could really get yourself some value there. Finally, Nick, in Miami, there's a lot of scuttlebutt that the disappointing Marlins are looking for trade opportunities, not to acquire players but to get rid of them, and including trade trading relievers AJ Ramos and David Phelps. Now, Greg Pyron looked at this story in Playing Time Tomorrow. That's where they look ahead at roster situations. He covers the National League East. So here's the question. If Miami trades A.J. Ramos and David Phelps, that's their closers. Who gets the ball in the ninth for Miami? Well, there are options, and so the, the options are certainly worth looking at. The, the name that springs to mind, of course, is Kyle Barraclow, uh, but he's had walk issues. He's uh, uh, reined in the free passes so far this month, but April to May, 7.7 control and 22. 22.1 innings pitched, uh, not good. Uh, June, better, 3.4 control and 8 innings pitched. So uh, better in June, but uh, the walk issues have been a problem with Barraclough and the kind of thing that might, uh, just for the manager's, uh, manager's uh, gastrointestinal comfort, might uh, you, you might have won in a closer. Nick Whitgren has been quietly effective, 2.88 ERA, DOM of 8.3, uh, control rate of 2.2, 100 BPV and 25 innings pitched. That's been very good, and that's not necessarily a fluke. 3.14 ERA, 102 BPV, and 52 innings a year ago. So those things look very good for Nick Whitgren, but the XERA doesn't support the near 3 ERA. 4.16 expected earned run average last year, 4.27 expected earned run average this year. Uh, and if you're a, uh, a baseball HQ follower, I pay a lot of attention to those uh, XERAs, although with relievers, perhaps they're a little out of, uh, out of line, but... Uh, th those would make me hesitant for a guy like Nick Whitgren. An interesting name to look at here is lefty Jarlin Garcia, a 24-year-old uh, sixth-best prospect in, on the Baseball HQ list for 2017. Uh, looked good in his first taste of Major League action. 3.68 ERA, 9.4 DOM, 1.6 control, 134 BPV. <coughs> A triceps injury limited him to 50 innings pitched in 2016, so this team let him try as a reliever. He's had some hit rate luck and been dominant against left-handed hitters. Uh, 14 command, 
and 573 uh, OPS against uh, left-handed hitters in 43 plate appearances. And did okay against right-handers, 3.0 control, 687 OPS. Uh, as the team's only lefty in the pen, he's worked his way into a more prominent role lately, racking up four holds in June. Uh, could eventually see some save chances on a matchup basis, although I would guess unlikely as the only lefty in the pen, unlikely to become the uh, uh, the, the real uh, stopper. I suppose if they got a left-hander to replace him as part of the trade of the other relievers, maybe he could think about stepping up that way, or maybe the management will finally get along with some of the more modern thinkers in baseball and say, I don't care what hand he pitches. If he matches up well in the ninth inning, then that's what we're going to go ahead and do. Nick, I I had a comment about this Nick Whitgren situation. You mentioned his expected ERA does not support an ERA around three, but he did it last year and he's doing it again this year, and sometimes... Don't you think we have to give credit where credit is due and say maybe this is one of those pitchers, this Nick Whitgren guy, who just outperforms his expected ERA, partly because of small sample reasons. He's a relief pitcher with relatively few innings. Maybe he's just doing something right that we haven't identified yet. Yeah, you know, I think that's, that's certainly possible. I, I think you and I have talked about this before, that for for a reliever, uh, the XERA, uh, because of the small sample size, can get warped a bit. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's entirely possible. Uh, on the other side, the flip side of that coin is if that XERA continues to be um, at at the same level over an extended period of time, then you begin to say, well, maybe there is something here, and, and we're going to see an implosion down the road. Uh, so I don't know. I I, I put less I think less um, uh, emphasis on the XERA for a reliever than I certainly would for a starter. Yeah, and we should also keep in mind that the XERA is not just something that appears like a genie's puff of smoke. It's the it's a calculated on the basis of strikeouts and walks and hard contact and all of these kind of things. And the fact is, if his expected ERA is the result of calculation of those core skills and those core skills aren't that great, then we have to expect that sooner or later the performance is going to catch up with the core skills unless it doesn't. Right, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, and I like the tagline, unless it doesn't. You never know with uh, with pitchers, and you especially never know with relievers. Nick, thanks a million for helping us out this week. We'll catch up with you again in seven days. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League, BaseballHQ.com, Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Hi, PD. Always good to be back. I wanted to talk uh, a little more about a single team this week than we usually do, uh, and that's the Oakland Athletics, who are clearly on some kind of uh, rebuilding mode, and they're making some decisions that have uh, really raised some eyebrows so far, uh, starting with Stephen Vogt. They designated Stephen Vogt for assignment. He's an all-star level catcher, and now he's in the minor leagues, maybe going to leave the club. Yeah, it's funny. This, 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 uh, along with surprises, this kind of wholesale makeover that Oakland seems to be uh, just beginning, it always creates creates some uncertainty and opportunities for fantasy owners, along with surprises. And uh, the vote uh, DFA was seemed like a surprise anyway, partly because he'd been an all-star catcher, like you mentioned, for the previous two seasons, and partly because he was so well regarded in the A's clubhouse. But honestly, you know, after I looked at everything, including reconsidering what kind of organization Oakland is, this thing probably shouldn't have been une- as unexpected as it was. Uh, this was about a lot of things, including Vogue's inability to get anything going offensively. He's not that great defensively. He doesn't have a good arm. Um, 
and looking looking at his age, 32 years old, he's in his arbitration years. Oakland has a, a younger, cheaper, and, and better defender in Maxwell uh, who shows some offensive promise. So maybe this shouldn't have, have uh, uh, been uh, uh, as big a surprise as it was. I can say that because I am a Sean Manaya owner in my league and, uh, unfortunately for me, a Stephen Vogt owner, I, I watched quite a few of their games, and he is a pretty poor receiver. I saw him like missing balls for past balls that definitely should have been caught and not doing a particularly good job blocking pitches to save runners moving up and that kind of thing, and they were stealing on him like crazy every time I watched. Uh, yeah, let's um, talk briefly about Bruce Maxwell III, I'll have you know, who steps in and... Uh, in his career, he's got some pretty decent hard contact, and uh, you know he, he's not the worst catcher in the world. No, he's not. He gets uh, he gets good marks for his receiving skills, um, and uh, and his offensive upside. If if you look at his numbers through the minors and what he does, he has good good plate skills. Uh, certainly better than expected for a catcher. Um, it looks like he could hit for double digit home runs uh, down the road while hitting maybe 250, 260. His his Offensive stats have improved since he's risen up through the high minors. He was posting a, a, an 808 OPS at Nashville this season. Granted, that's in the Pacific Coast League and AAA. But he's already hit 287 in 115 major league at bats, so he's not likely to be overmatched. Um, obviously, he's cheaper. Um, he, he's, he's probably going to get the, a slight majority of the Oakland catching at bats right now because he's a left-handed hitter. Uh, Josh Fegley's a right-hander. Fantasy-wise, I think he's a decent second catcher ad here and if you're Oakland you're looking for a guy he's 26 years old he could grow into this job and and be pretty decent I wouldn't be surprised at all if he approached Vogue's upside you mentioned uh, Josh Fagley who's actually been catching a lot on both sides of a platoon uh, partly because Vogue was so uh, inconsistent and not, and not producing but having said that Josh Fagley is not exactly making anybody forget Johnny Bench out here no, that's right, uh, and and the reason he was catching more, like you said, is because uh, uh, the downturn in Bogues' uh, production, particularly his uh, his defense, but he wasn't great shakes offense. So, yeah, I mean, if you're if if if, if you're a fantasy owner and you, and you don't like your catching situation, I mean, you could do a lot worse than than taking a flyer on Bruce Maxwell right now. Actually, you could do worse than uh, than take Fegley. I mean, his batting average is pretty low at two fourteen, but he does have three homers in about a hundred at bats. You know, Mike Zanino kind of situation where you might, if he got 400 at-bats, you'd be looking at double-digit homers. Yeah, Fegley's power isn't bad. I wouldn't call it Zanino's power, of course. No. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you're right. The opportunity is there, so uh, who knows? Also one of those guys, however, who if he did get 400 at-bats, the word would get around pretty quick. A 2% walk rate means the guy doesn't need to be thrown a, a, a strike too often, and major league pitchers won't throw him strikes if he'll swing it at balls out of the zone. Uh, the rebuild also hit a bit of a speed bump after they DFA'd Trevor Plouffe, who turned up in Tampa. Uh, they had Matt Chapman, their hot prospect, come into play, and now he's hurt. Went straight to the 10-day DL. Yeah, that was kind of kind of too bad. They had just gotten rid of Plouffe, and uh, unfortunately now Chapman comes down with a knee infection that's going to keep him out for a while. And and even worse for your pitchers, uh, for, for Sean Manaya and whoever else uh, you might own or anyone else might own, Ryan Healy's back at third base, which isn't a good good news for their defense. Uh, Oakland's defense isn't particularly good this year anyway. Uh, it's good news for Healy owners because he now qualifies in 25 keeper leagues going forward and again in 2018. Uh, and I don't think that's always going to be a given going forward but Chapman shouldn't be out for 
too long and he'll push Healy back to DH uh, and get most of the playing time over the remainder of the season at third base as long as he stays healthy. Ryan Healy can hit. He's one of the guys who's benefiting from the uh, home run surge. I'll talk more about that with Master Notes at the end of the show, uh, why that might be. But he's got an 881 or 861 OPS so far this year. He has 13 home runs in 269 at-bats. That's a 25-26 home run pace, and he's not going to kill you with the batting average either at 273. It's actually kind of a help. Yeah, he's, he's a born DH. He's making enough contact to keep his batting average above water, and uh, he, he hits for power. He's going to be in that lineup for, for the foreseeable future. Or until they have their next rebuild, I guess. Oakland has also begun auditioning their next wave of rotation candidates. You wrote about this in Playing Time Tomorrow a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of the first guys to come up, Daniel Gossett. So far, mixed results. Yeah, I watched a little of both of these games, and 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 actually, it's kind of funny. I saw two different uh, pitchers. Um, he, he he pitched a very good first inning against Miami, and then it, he seemed to let the nerves his nerves get the better of him in his major league debut, and he just got hammered afterward. But then he looked really impressive against a tough Houston lineup. Uh, he's going to need command to succeed. He's already given up three homers already, but but that wasn't an issue for him in the minors. He's a ground ball pitcher. Um, I actually like his chances of becoming a marginal fantasy asset at the bottom of the Oakland rotation. I just worry about what Oakland's defense is going to do for him over the short term here. Well, you say you like his chances of becoming a fantasy asset. When? Oh, I'm talking about longer term. Again, I'm thinking about my keeper leagues. Uh, so I think it's going to be touch and go this year because of that defense. But uh, if you look what he did against Houston, six strikeouts, lots of per- first pitch strikes in six innings, uh, um, a lot of swinging strikes, which kind of surprised me. His velocity was up around 92. He pitched a pretty good game against a pretty good offense. It was promising. Uh, uh, what else can we look for as Oakland rebuilds? Well, obviously, uh, most people are looking for Franklin Barreto, who is their number one prospect entering 2017, and he hasn't done anything to change that. He'll be up uh, at some point, but but the biggest issue for the A's now is they have a crowd in the middle of the infield. They've got a, a healthy and hitting Jed Lowry, uh, Chad Pender, who's at least hitting for power. He's hit a bunch of home runs, and now you've got uh, Marcus Semien, who's missed most of the season, and and he's and uh, he's rehabbing uh, from his injuries. Uh, so something's got to give, and I suspect at the very least the A's are going to want to move Lowry, who actually is suddenly a, a pretty viable trade candidate now that he's healthy and hitting again. Uh, uh, but simply put, barring injuries, Barreto has a few obstacles in his way, at least over the short term. I expect him to be up at least by the trade deadline, if not before. Another American League uh, team additioning their prominent Major League ready pitching is Seattle. Now they're supposed to get Felix Hernandez and Hisashi Iwakuma back this weekend. Uh, what's going to go on with those two established pitchers? Well, Felix sounds like he's still a go. Um, Iwakuma doesn't look good. He's still having problems with his shoulders. I think they've put his start on hold. Um, And this was one of the guys I wrote up in the forecaster. And actually, this has gone pretty much to plan, I thought. He had injuries last year. He was losing skills. He's 36 years old. He has struck out less than five hitters a game uh, this year before going down with shoulder inflammation. And his ERA was 4.35. He, he's actually been luckier than he should have been uh, based on the skills that I'm looking at. His controls are way off. Uh, I wouldn't be counting too much on Iwakuma for the rest of the year. They also brought up a, a prospect, Andrew Moore, a pretty good-looking prospect. He started the other night against Detroit, and he looked really good. I, I watched part of that game. I listened to most of it, and he, he sounded like he belonged out there. 
I didn't hear about Iwakuma's start being put on hold. He was supposed to start on Saturday um, until I heard about more. Um, and I was wondering, well, why are they bringing up more if Iwakuma's going to start on Saturday? And obviously, they were thinking about this in advance. And like you, I, I watched more last night for two, three innings, and I thought he was pretty impressive. Uh, it's another back-of-the-rotation command guy, but he was a two-time All-American who a lot of observers think can outpitch his repertoire with that command. If you look at his minor league numbers, and you'll see what I mean, uh, I, I, I kind of think he's a guy who could uh, who could uh, do pretty well uh, at the back of a rotation too. Much better in Seattle than in Oakland since their defense is a little bit better. Uh, I'd probably give him an edge for the rest of the year over Gossett. Now we should caution that Andrew Moore on the BaseballHQ.com depth charts for uh, the Seattle team is currently sitting seventh uh, in a five-man rotation. He's behind an uh, injured Drew Smiley, and he's also behind an injured Iwakuma. So right now, at least, he could be in the fifth spot. But uh, Smiley's supposed to be um, rehabbing and might be back around the All-Star break. Uh, Iwakuma, if he gets everything sorted out, he could be back soon as well. Might this be a situation where Moore has got some decent skills but no place to use them well i i kind of look at it a little bit differently i think he's got all kinds of opportunity over these next two three weeks and uh if he pitches well i don't think they're going to move him out of the rotation because i just don't have faith in. Well, i personally don't have any faith in iwakuma or smiley who's missed the entire year so far over to the east coast the boston red sox pablo sandoval their third baseman is out again this time he's got an ear infection of all things and uh, even when he was healthy, he had lost a little weight, and people were very excited about that, but he was not playing well. So what's going on with the third base situation for the Red Sox? Yeah, he's been awful. I mean, he's, he's, he's batting 212. His contact is way down from recent years. I think he's uh, 76% contact. He was always mid-80s. That was always the one strength that he had left as his power began to dissipate. Now he's not hitting for any power, and, of course, he's never had any speed. Um Pablo, you know, the, the Red Sox have a black hole at, uh, at third base. They've got Brock Holt on the DL and no timetable for his return. It looks like, at least in the short term, it's going to be Josh uh, Rutledge, and they've recalled Devin Marrero, who's, both of whom are terrible offensively, and they're going to man the hot corner for now. The big question is is what Boston is going to do down the stretch, particularly if they're still in the AL uh, race. They, I don't think they can, I don't think they can stay in the running with that kind of a situation at third base, no matter uh, how good their offense is. Um, the real question is, will they call up uh, their prize prospect Rafael Devers now at uh, at uh, at Double uh, A? Um, this reminds me a little bit of their third base situation last year and uh, and Yoan Moncada's uh, promotion in August. Uh, it's an interesting situation. I checked out Devers uh, as a minor league guy, and uh, so far this year at Double A, as you mentioned, he's batting at close to 300. He's got a 355 on base, and his OPS OPS is around 924. That's pretty good for Double A. I mean, obviously, it doesn't translate one for one to the major leagues, but he's got 14 home runs, no speed at all. But this looks like a guy who knows his way around a batter's box. Yeah, that's real good, and particularly for the Eastern League. Um, 14 home runs. If you look at his, if you check his record, the power was expected, but this year it's really blossomed. Uh, so they're going to be tempted, I think, down the road if they can't find uh, another third baseman on the on the trade market. Uh, this is a guy who's blossoming. On the other hand, he's only had 239 at bats at Double A, no Triple A time, and he's 20 years old. So it would be a significant leap. 
Yeah, and the last thing they want to do, if you're taking any kind of long-term outlook as Boston tends to want to do, is bring up a guy before he's ready and then he, his first experience in the major leagues is a failure and, and not being able to, to, do the, to, to meet the standard. And uh, that can sometimes impede a guy's uh, long-term development. I think Boston might be smarter than that. Yeah, um, I, I personally think they're probably going to explore the trade market. There's going to be a lot of guys who become, uh, as they say, redundant or superfluous. Uh, maybe they should have gotten in on the Trevor Plouffe uh, sweepstakes. Um, but uh, there's going to be some guys without jobs who, who other teams want to get rid of. So maybe that's where they go to find their third base help. What about Mike Moustakis in Kansas City? He's uh, coming up to the end of his contract. They'd probably be happy to trade Devers for, uh, for Mike Moustakis. Yeah, I I, I kind of doubt. You mean I, you mean Kansas City would be glad to accept Devers for Mike Moustakis and and yeah. Oh sure, yeah. <laughs> I, I I have no doubt that Kansas City would, but I seriously doubt whether Boston is going to consider trading Devers right now. Along with the return of Devin Marrero, which you mentioned, they've also recalled Sam Travis. He's more of a first baseman type. Is he going to play at all? Yeah, well, you know, he was called up before, and uh, he's a good natural hitter. Uh, he he has 24 plate appearances. He was actually hitting. 409 before they sent him back down again uh, a couple of weeks ago because they didn't have any room for him. Uh, um, he's basically going to platoon with Moreland at first base right now, and he's also a hedge against uh, Hanley Ramirez's nagging injuries. Uh, he's got some shoulder and neck problems, and he's not producing at DH. So uh, Travis is probably going to start maybe two, three, four times a week until they run out of uh, places for him to play again, and they'll send him down. Good longer-term uh, bet unless there's an injury, uh, which could open up more time for him. But, uh, but right now, uh, a, a deep league selection only. And finally, Jock, Baltimore lost starting shortstop J.J. Hardy to the DL. He was hit by a pitch and broke his wrist. Um, who takes his place, and is there anything to get excited about? Yeah, you know, normally we discuss these these long-term injuries he's going to be out for four to six weeks uh, in terms of the hit fantasy owners are taking and and the opportunity they provide but I'll tell you what neither is the case here because Hardy's been awful and and his replacement Ruben Tejada is probably just as bad if not worse uh, Tejada has shown uh, uh, interesting plate skills in the past he's shown uh, 80 80 plus percent contact and even occasionally a double digit walk rate but very few people have made soft contact the way Ruben Tejada does. Uh, he uh, he has no power whatsoever. hasn't made any uh, hasn't hit the ball hard anywhere he's gone, and and no speed. So this is a guy. This is a situation you can safely avoid, and it's going to be a problem for Baltimore going forward. Well, J.J. Hardy was on my Tote American League team, and while he's going to be impossible to replace pretty much uh, in the sense that there's, it's hard to find shortstops, though the stats he was putting up are not going to be hard to replace. Three home runs in uh, 239 plate appearances is not exactly making anybody forget uh, Mike Schmidt. Yeah, 211 batting average didn't help you out much either. 248 on base is even worse for an on-base <laughs> league than 211 is for a batting average league, so however you slice it, it's bad. Yep, yep, and well, and uh, see if you can look beyond Ruben Tejada, too. Yeah, I will. Jock, uh, thanks a million for helping us out again this week. We'll talk to you again in two weeks' time, because you're off to Mexico. Yep, sure, MPD. We will talk to you then. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature guest expert, Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. 
Camacho swinging at the whistling line, drive to left center field. It's a base hit. It's taken on the second hop by Ripple. The throw is coming in a second. Camacho is racing for it. Camacho makes it with a slide and it's saved for a double. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Scott Pianowski, fantasy sports writer for Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's great to be here, Patrick. Before we get started on uh, all your tweets and columns and all the stuff we need to talk about, how are your teams doing in your experts leagues? Oh, man. Um, I was joking with Fred Zinke that I should probably try to offer a bribe for you to not ask me that question. I am in last place in the Tut Wars Mixed League. You know, look, I'm I'm competing every week. I think I'm a good player. I'm engaged. It's I'm never going to give up. I mean, I um, I'm very embarrassed by that. But I've looked at my team and tried to figure out: is there you know, what could I have done differently, or what could I have avoided? You know, is, is this one of the prisms we see? One of the problems we have with competitive environments is when we do well, we want to say, "Oh, that validates us. I'm a good player." And when we don't do well, we want to say, "Well, you know, bad luck. I who could have seen all these things happening?" And I'm trying to be very realistic about should I have seen, you know, just look at the top of my roster, Manny Machado, who I recently traded, but you know he was a big pothole for me for most of the season. Ryan Braun got hurt, gotten almost nothing out of him. Zach Britton uh, was one of my two closers. Obviously, he got hurt early in the season. Uh, Lindor's done far less than I expected. Jonathan Lucroy, it's amazing his run production numbers for somebody who's played a full season. I mean, there's five of like my most ex- seven most expensive players who have done significantly less than I expected. And I'm somebody who might say, well, maybe you shouldn't have you know, paid up for Braun because he's got an injury history. I thought he was somebody who would play hurt. It's kind of interesting that the Brewers are in the hunt, but Braun isn't playing. And I don't know how badly he's hurt. He's had a recent setback. But I don't know. I, I don't feel that there's a lesson here. I, I All these players were, I thought they were decent values. Somebody bid $1 less than I did. In every instance, it wasn't like I, any of them were like must-gets for me. I just thought they were decently priced. And, of course, now I don't feel that way. Yeah, I was going to say I've had the same experience. I'm second from the bottom in Tout American League, and I thought I had a really terrific draft. And I still think I had a, well an auction. I think I did really well at it. I thought I made good, sensible bargain picks, except for Danny Espinosa absolute brain cramp on that and I'll and I'll own it you know I wish I hadn't got him but everybody else I got I thought was a pretty good get and and so far they've just underperformed a little here and there but when I look at where I am in the categories I'm you know two good weeks away from jumping from second to last to like third in the league and that's what I kind of pin my hopes on is that you know sooner or later everything's going to start happening yeah, it's funny, you know, maybe five or six weeks into the season, I know it's always a question of when the standings mean anything, but I was in fifth place maybe five weeks ago, and then just everything just started sinking like a stone, and I've looked at some of the categories. I have a lot of upward mobility in categories. I think it's going to be a pipe dream to try to win at this point, but I think I feel confident I, I'm going to pass some teams, and, and even though I don't look that good in the standings now, I'm starting to get healthier. I, I may get written back i've sold a couple of guys who were disappointing for things that i think would make work out well i actually have i know this isn't a great thing to have in a mixed league but i actually have really good depth and i recently parlayed some of that depth to get matt carpenter who's really valuable in obp league and i'll talk about him a little bit later i always talk about matt carpenter when we talk i think but i'm you know look it's fun i enjoy i the auction is the is the most fun day of the year and the most fun weekend of the year but the competition is fun. I mean, I, you know, Fred Zinke has been my unofficial therapist. We talk almost every day uh, via email, and we've made a couple of trades, which, of course, you know, you know is always going to happen when you talk to Fred. But 
it, it's you know it's, it's a challenge. Um, I'm I'm going to play the whole season out, and I feel confident that the end of the year. Usually, my teams rise as the season goes along, and I don't know if that's because people get bored or they go on vacation or they start doing football leagues or whatever. But I always feel that if you stay engaged, you usually get some sort of reward because it's just hard for the whole league to do that. Uh, even at this level where everybody cares and it's such a public league, I mean, eventually some people are going to start doing football stuff or some people are going to say, well, I'm in 12. I can't do anything. I can't go anywhere. And I'm just uh, either competitive enough or vain enough or scrappy enough that I'm going to play the whole season out. So my challenge is to try to make this a respectable showing. Overall, in my other leagues, it's been okay of a season. I've gotten some things right, some things wrong. I guess my big regret is that I'm usually extremely aggressive in the free agent pool. And, and this year I've, I've been aggressive too. But I look at, like, a lot of people have made this point. Look at the home run leaders. And you see Aaron Judge, and you see Logan Morrison, you see Justin Smoke, and you see Ryan Zimmerman. And, and there were a lot of those guys had really easy arguments against them at the beginning of the season. And I, I think it's really important to, you can't wait for proof, especially in a mixed league. Somebody's going to say, well, Aaron Judge has four home runs. He's hitting 350. I'll try him. You know, or Ryan Zimmerman, I know he hasn't done anything in several years, but he's playing well, you know, he's in a good lineup. Okay, I don't care if they hit 213 last year. And I feel like this year a lot of the teams that are doing well had to hit on a few of those guys. And even though I'm generally trying to be open-minded about breakouts, even if they don't always make sense, just, you know, what the heck, find somebody in your roster you don't want and try you know, somebody who maybe has figured something out. I feel like I don't have enough of those guys on my rosters. Yeah, that's really important in mixed leagues, especially in uh, in only leagues and single league formats. Pretty much everybody will be grabbed because you just need the warm body, you know. So uh, Aaron Judge was actually uh, bought at the auction by Mike Podhorzer, who's a big has a big big lead. He also picked up Aaron Hicks, I believe, at the auction, you know, because we thin out the herd pretty pretty uh, aggressively. Now you mentioned Scott that there wasn't a lesson to be learned here, and I'm wondering what you think about. Uh, spending big money because every time I get into one of these leagues, I find my best years are when I don't spend heavily on any one particular guy, and my worst years are when I uh, when I do. Uh, last year I did well with Mookie Betts and Cabrera for a lot of money. That was kind of the outlier. Have you ever reconsidered your pattern of spending in these leagues based on some kind of bad experience like this? Well, a lot of it's going to be obviously going to be context dependent, league dependent. Whenever when I used to play in, in National League tout, and I came in second a couple of times, but really frustrating that I was never able to win. But I had plenty of teams that contended, and I always felt in the only leagues, it's all about your weakest player. Uh, you need to have uh, you know at bats participation. You need to have as many solid players as you can. Whereas in the mixed league, you could argue, especially in a year like this where there's been so much stuff that's come from the waiver wire that you can argue that go out and get proven commodities, get proven stars with the idea that who cares if the bottom quarter of your roster stinks, you're going to turn that over anyway. And the funny thing is I, I did pay for a lot of guys. It's just they happen to be people like Manny Machado and Ryan Braun and Francisco Lindor and Jonathan Lucroy. You know, I, I thought in Britain, of course, I, I thought they were all going to be guys who, who would have it, – it's not so much that, you know, I don't need them to be great. I just want them to, to, to kind of be in their range of outcomes, and I feel like with all five of those guys, and I, I, I'm sounding a little whiny here, I don't want to because I, I own my standing, and I've certainly made mistakes, and there's players I could have bid on more, the different paths I could have gone on. But uh, I, I feel like in the mixer, I actually did. I, I didn't necessarily go stars and scrubs, but I wasn't afraid to put some big bets down on some players, and it just it feels like my hit rate was a lot. I feel like if I could play this league 20 times, 
I don't. I would not have a hit rate as low as the one I'd have this year. Well, you mentioned Zach Britton. I just read a story before I called you, uh, Scott. He says he's going to be back on July the 5th, and uh, by all accounts, his rehab is going splendidly. So maybe you'll have the equivalent of a great free agent pickup when uh, July rolls around, right around All-Star break. You're going to get back a a premium closer. That'll be helpful. Let's move on. uh, Tweets and columns. You're a big uh, Twitter guy, and your columns are at uh, Yahoo Sports in the uh, Roto Arcade area. And you tweeted recently some positive comments about Mike Zanino, the Seattle catcher of ultra-low batting average, but real good power. And you also wrote about him in Closing Time. That's the name of your column at Yahoo Sports. Uh, what interests you so much lately about Mike Zanino? Well, I mean, he's kind of this month's version of, of the, the Zimmerman story or the Logan Morrison story or the Smoke story, where he, he's hitting for a lot of power. And I know that the strikeout rate is still really high, but... Baseball has shifted so much in the last few years where it feels like, and actually, I don't enjoy this. I, I, I miss rallies. I miss like a single and a stolen base having some value. I'm not saying I want everybody to play like the 1985 St. Louis Cardinals, but it feels like all you see now is homers and strikeouts and, and relief pitchers come in, they pitch for an inning, and they throw 100 miles an hour, and you know, it's just so many home runs now. Everybody hits home runs now. But I guess part of what that means to me now is that when a guy like Zanino is producing and hitting for a lot of power, and this is the number three overall pick in his draft class, I know part of that was the defensive value they expected him to have, but I don't care so much about the strike. I, you know, everybody strikes out now. It's not that big of a deal to me. And I, and I like that he tweaked his approach a little bit in the minors. I'm not a batting coach. I'm just somebody who's watched baseball for a long time. But at least he was doing something different. He was modeling himself after Matt Holliday, which I think is a, is a good guy to, to – Try to, if you can, imitate him. I mean, Yogi Berra said, if you can't imitate him, don't copy him. Or supposedly Yogi said that. But at least he's working on something different. He you know, went down the minors, got some confidence back. He's got the job. He, I guess he's a pretty good pitch framer from what I hear. I, I don't know a ton about that, but I just know what smarter people say about it. So I see the power. I know the average can't be real because he just strikes out too much. I mean, the average has to come way down. But catcher has been such a wasteland. I mean, I talked about LaCroix earlier. You know, Kyle Schwarber was terrible. He just got finally sent down to the minors. If LaCroix just hits for power and hits 240, I think he's worth it because we're having so much difficulty finding catchers who can help our fantasy teams. In any way, shape, or form, you're right. Uh, In the closing time column, you also noted that Matt Bush, the Texas relief pitcher, is walking on thin ice in that closer role down for the Rangers. How likely do you think Matt Bush is to crash through into the freezing depths below? And uh, if he does, who do you think is going to take that gig? Well, we've seen that they have a quick trigger in Texas. It didn't take long for them to have closer turnover in the last few years. And, and this year, of course, Dyson was terrible. I mean, he wasn't just terrible when he lost the job. He was terrible afterwards, and he's actually since left the organization. But the thing is, it seems like they have a lot of interesting guys. Keone Kella is somebody who I have on a few teams who it seems like, and this isn't always the way to, to follow the saves, but it seems like he's the bridge to Bush, and a lot of times they do go in that direction. Leclerc has a really high strikeout rate. They have some nice power arms there. Uh, Bush has not pitched well over the last three or four weeks. And again, because Bannister, or maybe it's coming from the organization, but it seems like this is a team that is not going to mess around them. They think they're supposed to be a playoff contender. They're maybe like one good week away from really being in it. They're not going to catch Houston, but maybe they could jump back into the uh, wild card race. I don't think Bush has a long leash. And I think Kella or Leclerc would probably get the next save opportunity if Bush lost his way. And I've added Kellen in a few leagues. 
Yeah, I actually had him earlier in the year, and then he got sent down because of that attitude adjustment issue or whatever, and uh, I I let go because there's only so many spots. I think you want your closer to have attitude, right? Yeah, you do, but I, I think his attitude was more like uh, not not helpful in that regard, shall we say. Uh, I noted your response to Scooter Jeanette's big uh, four-homer, ten-RBI game, and uh, a lot of people wrote it down to flukiness or whatever. You said there's more to the story, and in fact, you think Jeanette is actually playable in mixed leagues, which is probably something not a lot of people think. F- sounds like a Paul Harvey thing. What is the rest of the story? I wish I had a great hook like Paul Harvey would have. But, look, three positions of eligibility in Yahoo leagues for Jeanette, second base, third base, and outfield. And now that Cozart is hurt, Jeanette's spot in the lineup is secure. He's going to bat second, which means he's behind Hamilton, and he's in front of Joey Votto, which is just a good place for run production. It's a good place to see good pitches. And this is a guy who's got a career 280 average. He's, I think he's hitting 284 right now or something like that. That's a positive for us. He's got some power. Uh, he. He's capable of running, although he hasn't done much of it this year, but he stole eight bases in part-time duty last year. I love position flexibility. I love a good lineup spot in what I think is, is a decent lineup. It's maybe not the 27 Yankees, but one of the top four or five lineups. But I think it's a plus lineup. Love him in front of Otto. It's a spot to be in Cincinnati. And, you know, somebody it, when he hit the four home runs, I saw somebody wrote, you know, don't run out to add Scooter Jeanette. And I think that's a little bit of a cheap way to look at it because it's not – that is he going to be great? It's it's the question is is he worth a back you know bottom spot on my roster? Is he worth owning in a mixed league? You know somebody might say, well, don't expect him to hit thirty home runs. That's fine. Could he hit twenty? Could he hit eighteen or seventeen? You know, could he be good enough that he plays every day? Especially now that Kozar's hurt. And I think the answers to a lot of those questions are yes. I, I again, we don't need you know somebody will perform at an unreasonable uh, high point. Uh, somebody will really get it going for three or four weeks. And people will say, well, don't expect him to win the Cy Young or don't expect him to hit 370. Well, no kidding. We already know that those things are outliers and unrealistic. The question we should be asking ourselves is, it, it's not you can't just say regression and slam the phone down or, or bang the gavel down. You have to ask regression to what point. And you can't just say, well, Scooter Jeanette, four home runs. What a fluke that is. Of course it's a fluke. It was a fluke when Mark Witten did it. I mean, it was a fluke when Mike Cameron did it. It's really a fluke when anybody does it because it's just a hard thing to do. But does he have a job? Yes. Is it in a good slot? Yes. Does he cover multiple positions? Yes. Is, are there categories that he's demonstrated he can help us in? Yes. To me, that means that in your mixed leagues of, of 12 team up to like 14 or 15 team, I think he's worth owning. Justin Turner of the Dodgers is currently hitting fairly close to 400, and I'm not talking on base percentage, I'm talking batting average. And you uh, said on Twitter it feels like he's hitting 600. What did you mean by that? I love that guy. I don't think I own him anywhere either, but what a line drive machine. Talk about one of the mistakes the Mets have made. I don't think they ever thought he could stay healthy, and even the Dodgers, when they first got Turner, used to really baby him with the playing time. One thing I love about Turner is he murders right-handers. We always think about platoon edges and, you know, uh, you want the lefty against the righty and the righty against the lefty and all that stuff, but I've always found the best hitters are the guys who hit all pitching, and like whenever I see a left-handed hitter who hits left-handed pitching, I think that's a really good hitter because a lot of times that's very difficult to do, especially because you just don't see lefties as often, so it's harder to develop that skill. In the case of Turner, he's always owned right-handed pitching. I love that he hits the ball hard. I love hard-hit metrics in general and, and how they've come into vogue in the last few years, and we're starting to get smarter and smarter with – it used to be we just threw all the batting average balls and play in a bucket. Everybody should be around this number and say, you know, wait a minute. You know, some guys run better than others. and Some guys hit the ball harder than others. 
square the ball up harder than others? And, and why are we holding home runs against BABIP? Why are we not counting that when the best thing you can do is hit a rocket into the seats? Anyway, with Turner, you know, he's got a little edge to his game. He's got that crazy hair and everything. I love, the, I love that he owns righties. I kind of love because uh, I like to troll the Mets. I have some friends who are Mets fans, and generally I'm, I'm not supposed to be a fan of anybody as a writer. Uh, and, and I like the fact that a lot of people have said to me, what team do you root for? Because I don't think it ever comes out in my writing because you know, I'm just trying to follow the league. But uh, I kind of like that the Mets gave up on Turner, and, and he's just become – I feel like every time you see his at-bat, you're, gonna, you're probably going to see a ball hit hard. I mean, maybe not every time or the majority, but more than the average player. And, uh, you know, in, until this year, you had Vince Scully describing it too, which is as good as it gets. So I just – a guy – I'm getting nothing out of this for fantasy, but uh, Justin Turner is just a really fun guy to watch. Are you as surprised as I am that Justin Turner, considering how hard he hits the ball, and you've got guys like, uh, I don't know, Gerard Dyson has four home runs this year, and there's something going on about that that I'm going to talk about later in Master Notes, but Justin Turner only has five, and that surprises me. Uh, Justin Smoke has 21 or whatever he has, Gerard Dyson has four, and this guy's got five. It seems like he should have 25. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, I still think that there could be an uptick there. I mean, just keep it in the ball hard, and then good things will happen. Man, the the homer he hit against the Mets was was out of the park in like two seconds, and it was like fifteen or twenty rows up. But maybe it's a case of maybe he's more of a line drive gap hitter than than he is a pure home run hitter. But uh, if I can't imagine the Turner owner in your league wants to trade him because that average is so pretty, but and and we know man that lineup is loaded. I just love having pieces of plus lineups. And the Dodgers are just hitting the crap out of the ball but yeah that home run count is a little bit surprising i would think that's going to correct itself a little bit and, and it will be on the upswing soon but um you know with his batting average i'm sure his owners probably don't even care too much about that yeah i don't imagine either i know we play an on base league uh, and uh man he's up around 460 or something like that it's just ted williams kind of country it's eerie uh, and i wonder if that line drive approach is helping him uh, more than it might otherwise because so many other guys have uh, changed their swings to try to get more lift on the ball to drive out those home runs. Maybe that gives him an advantage. I don't know. He's he's approaching the plate maybe differently than a lot of other guys. Before the season, Scott, a lot of people were very high on Christian Yelich of Miami, and even though he's not playing super great this year, uh, a lot of people are still on Christian Yelich. You said on Twitter you don't get why. Why not? You know, you just can't get the ball in the air more. I mean, 62%, 57%. This year it's like 58%. And in a year where everybody's hitting home runs, he only has seven. I I don't know. Yelich, I, I get it. I, I, first of all, I mean, you would think he might be my type of player because I love players who do different things, who do have a broad uh, amount of um, skills they can give us. I mean, Bill James said for years, you talk about Dwight Evans as an example of a player who was underrated all through his career in part because he did a lot of things well. But he didn't have maybe, of course, also Evans got on base a lot, and he played in an era where not everybody understood how valuable that was. But And then I grew up in Boston, and I saw Jim Rice be the person who got most of the acclaim. He won an MVP justly in 78, but Evans was the better player in the 80s and I think is probably more deserving of a Hall of Fame nod. I don't know if he'll ever get it. You know, all those gold gloves in right field, and, you know, so difficult to play right field in Fenway with the, with the real estate and the fans are right on top of you. It's the Sunfield. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, I, I know sometimes I, mean, I think Rob Nyer said that, uh, Evans couldn't be the, the best right fielder in Boston. It, it had to be Trot Nixon because Nixon played more games in center field. I, that to me was just ludicrous. I mean, it's so difficult to play right field in Fenway, but anyway, 
I'm getting a little bit off the point here, but Evans did a lot of things well, and that often is what makes a player underrated. That specialists are overrated, and a guy with broad skills are underrated. And yet Yelich, I think what bugs me about him is that for some reason he was a player that a lot of analysts wanted to price an improvement and, and wanted to, and then you know, a lot of times the, the growth of a player's career isn't linear. Sometimes they can improve one year, they can go back one year. They can show a skill one year and then not show it the next year. They hit lefties one year, they don't hit lefties the next year. And I think this is probably just a personal thing with me, and, and maybe it's not it's not the best thing to be tweeting about. You know, sometimes I just tweet things that are a little bit more half-baked than other things. But I've just gotten the sense that Yelich is a player that the industry really wants to make. And I always felt Schwarber was like that, too. I mean, it felt like he was put in the Hall of Fame before you played 200 games in the majors. It's like, man, can he play defense? Can he hit lefties? How often is he going to strike out? You know, and now finally the Cubs lost patience with Schwarber. But I, I just feel like with Yelich, for some reason, it just seemed like a, a real rush to anoint him as like this MVP sleeper or something. And heck, I think he might be the third best outfielder on this team. I mean, in part because the other two guys are playing so well. Marcelo Zuna is everybody I think knows he's good. But I think he's one of the most underrated, underreported, underappreciated players in baseball right now. And lo and behold, Patrick, in a season where everybody is hurt. Gene Carlos Stanton is not hurt. And for that matter, Stephen Strasburg is not hurt. So what what the heck's going on with that? Well, if you're asking me to figure out how injuries work in baseball, don't, because I, I have no more idea than I have about how to pilot a spaceship to the moon. When I look at Christian Yelich, and I'm curious what you think about this, from the time he joined Major League Baseball in 2013, his BABIP uh, has been around at least 360, somewhere in that vicinity, 355, 360. And... Once a player displays a skill, he owns it. That's what we say at Baseball HQ, and, and we've demonstrated that what we call hit rate, it's a percentage version of the exact same thing, once he establishes a level, he tends to, to stick to it. But this year, he's down around 31%. He's, his BABIP is 308, which is 50 points off of his uh, career-established level. What do you make of that? Well, line drives down, hard hit rate down. Um I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it's, I, I haven't I haven't watched Yelich that closely, but uh, he never had an elite hard hit rate either. I mean, his, his line drive rate has, has been a little bit over average, but not not in the twenty seven, twenty eight, thirty percent. It's been more like the twenty one, twenty two percent, where it's good. It, it's something. It's a plus skill, but it's it's not like he he's elite in that skill. Uh, I would think that just hitting less line drives, and that could be variance. That could be. I mean, who knows? I mean, that could be an adjustment that he makes at some point. Uh, that that could be a vision issue. It could be a lot of different things. But I mean, he's still a good player. He's still on pace to have probably a, around uh, fifteen to eighteen to twenty home runs and stolen bases. You know, the two sixty nine average you would think would come up if if he plays closer to what his BABIP is as a career. I don't. Know, I just I just have a thing about Christian Yelich, and I don't think I've articulated it well at all. I, I it's to me, it's just when players and, and I think Schwarber's a better example of this. Um, I don't want to kick a guy while he's down in Iowa, but maybe they're doing a Field of Dreams remake. But whenever there's a rush to treat a player in what I think is a different tier than what he's already demonstrated, I, I get that players are on trajectories, and you think of a young player, you want to get a player on, on the up arrow, on the, on the up escalator, and maybe you know, hit him at the right time. But I just felt like with Schwarber and, and with Yelich, just maybe more of a effort to elevate them to a tier that I was willing to pay. Just out of curiosity, do you think Aaron Judge is going to maintain this kind of production, not necessarily for the rest of the year, but is this who he is when we're starting to think about him for next year or the year after? 
nobody can be this good. But I guess the idea would be, what would I project him for? If I had to project his 2018 right now, I'd probably say 285, 290 average with 35 to 40 home runs. It's been really weird to watch all these Colorado pitchers doing so well, but despite all those great performances we're seeing, you still insist you would not roster a Colorado pitcher in a mixed league. At this point, why not? Well, a starting pitcher, I, I would be fine with um I don't have any Greg Holland, man. I, he's allowed five runs. I don't know where any of them works. I, I haven't seen every time I watch him pitch, it's like nine pitches and the game is over, but it's just such a hard place to pitch for, for documented reasons. The breaking balls don't break so much. Obviously, the ball, the, the thin air, and, and the ball flies well. But the underrated thing, and we saw it get to Jeff Hoffman a couple of days ago, is that park is so huge. Everything falls in. I Just the acreage that you're asking the upfielders to cover so that you can make a good pitch and, and your guy flails one, is just so much of a better chance of it falling in. It's such a great park for batting average. And you think of... The weather, you know, Gene McCaffrey's talked about this a lot. I mean, look at the monthly splits for Coors Field. You know, a lot of times they don't have great weather in April, and you don't see a lot of hitting there, but it's hotter than heck now. And, you know, we saw what Arizona did in this series, and some really good Colorado ERAs get messed up. And here's another, the other problem with the Colorado pitchers is you have to deal with Coors. And, look, I'm not exactly giving you a deep theory that Coors Field is a bad place for a pitcher. We know that. All the data – shows it, it's documented, everybody gets that. But if you play for Colorado, what do you do when you go on the road? You go to Arizona, which which may is right up there with Colorado, is the worst places for a pitcher to hit. And oh, by the way, Arizona has a great team and a great lineup. Then you go to L.A. team you know hits all these home runs. They have a deep lineup, one through nine. So that's no good. I mean, the Giants start is, is good, and the San Diego start is good, although, although Peco has not been... The same another park that's shifted a little bit. It, it's still a better park for the pitchers, but you can hit a home run in Peco Park now. For a while, it seemed like you couldn't. So that park's played a little bit differently in recent years. But so a lot of people have said to me, "Well, I'm going to own the Colorado pitchers. I'll just use them on the road." Well, I don't know how you can ever feel good in Arizona. I don't know how you can ever feel good in LA. So now you've already lost what, 60% of your start, 65%, something like that. I mean. If you don't want to start somebody at least half the time, I don't see why you'd bother rostering them and the problem when when things go bad in colorado you don't allow five or six runs you allow nine runs you allow 10 runs something like that it just it can get away from you really quickly and it may be a day where the team thinks you need to give them some length and they keep you in we've seen that a lot of times where guys allow seven or eight runs in a colorado game and they stay in because the team can't go to the bullpen in the second inning so the downside is too much for me because again the park which everybody knows about but the other problem here is that Arizona and L.A., you can't really trust those road starts either. So you're just taking too many. And, you know, there are other teams in the National League who can hit. You may not want to pitch them against the Nationals or there may be an interleague matchup you don't like. I just feel like you get the calendar. It's like trying to get a, a reward flight on an airline and, like, all the seats and all the dates are blacked out. And you're like, when can I fly? To me, it's, that's the question with the Colorado pitchers. When can you fly? All the dates are blacked out for you. You asked your Twitter followers which character in the movie Dazed and Confused Jeff Samarja basically is. I thought that was pretty funny and pretty interesting, and I started thinking about it. Whatever made you think of that question? Uh, he just has a certain look to him. He got certain hair to him, certain facial hair to him. And I can't call him Mitch because Tim Lincecum and Mitch are basically... Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know that they aren't the same people or that they didn't come from the same parents or the same set of genes, but... 
somebody, one of my readers said uh, Pickford, which I thought was really good. Samarja seems to have a little Pickford in him. And also, he's a fascinating fantasy player. I mean, he's got this walk-strikeout ratio, which is too good to be true. I want to like 78-3 to three over his last like maybe six weeks. But yet he's allowing a lot of runs. He's certainly not winning games because the Giants stink. And we can live with that. I mean, if a pitcher's going to get good stats other than the wins, I mean, you just accept it and hope it flips for you. But it's just so funny to see somebody with an unbelievable strikeout-to-walk ratio and yet the ERA still over four. You have to trust that strikeout-to-walk ratio, especially in a park like AT&T. It's one thing if you, know, you see somebody do it in Yankee Stadium and you worry about the home runs. But, uh, yeah, Days of Confused, you know, I, it's a movie. I love Richard Linklater. I thought Boyhood was one of the best films I've ever seen, and I, all of his movies are good. The Before Sunrise trilogy is so good. And Days and Confused to me, and I've, I've heard after the fact that I guess there, a lot of that was taken from real life. I think you watch that movie, it almost, to me, feels like a documentary. That's how realistic I think they get that vibe of the mid-'70s. It's funny, when I looked at it, my first answer was Pickford. I thought, that's what he reminds me of. I, I thought, yeah, of course you think about uh, Mitch because he's a pitcher after all, and he does kind of have that hair and, the, and that kind of thing. But, yeah, I thought Pickford for some reason. Did you get any Twitter responses? What did uh, other people say? A lot. Uh, there's some Pickford. I think somebody might have said O'Banion. But, you know, the Pickford, right? What, what's Pickford doing? He's throwing a kegger when his parents are going out of town. I don't know Jeff Samarja. But he just seems like a guy, you know, we know he's a football background, right? He's a receiver at Notre Dame. He just seems like, and I say this with admiration, he seems like the kind of guy that when his parents were going out of town in high school, he probably had the keg, you know, the, the kegs on order. <laughs> you don't want them coming too early, right? But um, <laughs> he just seems like a guy you probably had a lot of fun with in high school. It's just all on speculation. And, again, I'm saying it all as a, as a favorable, admirable way. He just seems like a fun guy to hang with. Well, back to baseball and Jeff Samarja, his uh, strikeout per walks ratio of 8.6 or so leads the majors, I think, certainly leads the National League. I don't get why this uh, uh, why this uh, ERA is so high, although he's been allowing a lot of home runs. Maybe that's a big part of it, and apparently he seems to be uh, issuing the home run balls while he has guys aboard, which uh, kind of compounds the issue. I mean, worst home run rate of his career and. In- it's going to be possible to throw too many strikes. I mean, maybe the best thing Samarja could do, I'm not saying, you know, throw a guy's heads or anything, but maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to hit a guy or, or to really make an effort. I haven't broken down what where he's working in the plate, in and out, up and down, but you know, maybe he needs to throw inside more. Just to, Maybe guys are getting a little bit too comfortable because they know he's always around the plate. Actually, I was watching a game the other day, and I don't remember who it was, but uh, the announcers were talking about that and the the idea that we kind of always want our pitchers to be in the zone all the time. And sometimes if you're in the zone all the time, it makes you easy, easier to hit, and that can be a bad thing. So I think you need a little bit of that Greg Maddox willingness to go off the plate a little bit and try to get them to chase. Uh, of course, nothing new there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, you recently re-ran a column from a couple of years ago about what you call the hell of trading in fantasy leagues, and specifically the six trade partners you meet in hell when you're trying to make fantasy trades. The subject of trading has been coming up pretty regularly with my experts here at Baseball HQ Radio. So let me start by asking, why does it seem so much harder to deal now than it did back when we were just starting out? I think communication paths have changed. It used to be when I first got into fantasy, and I think my first year was in 88, and I really ramped up my interest in fantasy in the 90s, we would trade on the phone. 
and we would trade in person. We would hang out, you know, we'd have a beer, or get something to eat or whatever, or watch a game together, and we'd have our rosters, and, and we'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, and we'd try to figure something out, hammer it out. And now it's how do people trade? You know, there's emails or there's, somebody goes on the message board and says, well, I need steals or I need a closer or whatever. And, you know, I'll, I'll email sometimes people with very specific, you know, I, and I, I always try to audit rosters and, you know, to, to see what the other guy might need or what his measure of thinking might be. And sometimes I'll send a really detailed email to somebody and ne- never get a reply, which is, to me, frustrating. I yeah, I, I like to talk baseball anyway. I, I mentioned Fred Zinke earlier. I mean, we, we just talk baseball, you know, four or five times a week. It's great. You know, it just, hey, you, you made a good pickup here. Hey, that guy's playing well for you. What's wrong with that guy? You know, it's just, we're just two baseball fans and two friends. And, and I wish, I, I don't want to say everybody's like this because, you know, people are at different points of their lives and, you know, your family should always come first or, you know, maybe there's something going on in your life I don't know about. Those should Those should be the priorities. I get it. But I just think it's fun talking about baseball, and that's why the same people in you know I, I talk. Jeff Erickson's in a league of mine. You know, we just talk. We're on Twitter, sending each other messages about, oh, did you, did you watch this? Did you see that? You know, I talk to Fred a lot. Yeah, you know, a lot of people. Um, I'm co-owner in a keeper league with my friend Scott Lee, and we talk almost every day about what's going on with our team. Just it's just fun, and uh, I don't know for some reason. I, th- I think because email and text message has replaced direct phone calls or you don't hang out with people as much as you used to because, again, people get older, people get married, people have kids, people move all around the country, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm all for having a, a full, you know, cultured, deep, meaningful life, and that means, you know, life without sports, a life offline and everything. I'm all for that. But I feel like we would get more trades done if we had more direct conversation, if we had more phone calls, if we, we went to, you know, to more games together, had more beers together. I feel like that was the center of my fantasy experience in the 90s. And to be honest with you, I miss it a lot. I do too. Uh, my fantasy experience started in the 90s, and uh, I've told this story before here on Baseball HQ Radio, but I'll just repeat it briefly. We had our stats sent to a print shop by fax, from uh, all-star stats i don't know if you remember them and then the printer would print up copies of it and then a guy that in our league was a taxi driver and on the thursday or tuesday whenever it came out tuesday i guess he would drive over to the print shop he would gather up all the stats and then he actually hung a second mailbox on his house so that we could he put the stats in there one by one we'd all drive over there to grab them and this usually happened around noon and so every tuesday at noon there'd be four or five of us all pulling up at the same time and we got a lot of trades done because we were standing around looking at the stats and and you're just standing side by side with these guys and i i I think that we missed that we used to go and watch games on tv because they weren't on tv unless you went someplace that had a big satellite dish it's hard to make trades with people you don't know i think that's the problem and also i think people of course a lot of guys play in 20 leagues at a time and it must be really difficult to figure out what you have where you have it and and be diligent in uh, 20 different leagues sure i mean when i again was first really getting in the swing of fantasy i was in one league and we would get stats uh the quote-unquote chelmsford league chelmsford massachusetts i don't know if anybody still lives in chelmsford but at one point most of us did and the guy who commissions uh that league a really great guy named larry hold i give him a shout out he used to put the quote-unquote stats out once a week We, we have actually a little bit of a different format where you get graded every week with a fantasy point total, and then whatever that point total is carries over week to week. Anyway, we would get the, the stats would come out, and he'd print them out, and he was always great about like printing stuff out of his work and everything. God love him. 
And so you would talk trade, and you would say, oh, yeah, uh, I want to trade for Tony Phillips. Somebody would say, well, how's he doing? I'd say, well, on the blue sheets, I'd be you know, quoting stats that were like six days old, you know? Or I'd say, oh, I got the Boston Globe in front of me, you know, and in the Sunday paper, you know, he's got a 258. It's so great how now everything is up to the minute, and we all know all these secondary and tertiary things about players, where in the old days we were quoting stats, you know, from the Baseball Weekly, or quoting stats from the USA Today, or quoting stats from a paper that was three or four days behind or, you know, from our printouts that were a week old, but, but man, it, it was fun. I, I, I hate to be somebody who just talks about, I mean, you know, the internet has changed fantasy and, and for the most part, for the better, you know, now we don't have to keep score by hand anymore. And now we know the standings anytime we want and we can get information so much easier. Although I, I think that really hurt the edge of the, of the hardcore players. It used to be, if you had, any extra info, you were so far ahead of everybody else. And now it's just, you know, so many sites just give it to you for free or give it to you with really easy access that that, that advantage is gone. But that's okay. The Internet's great. I love the Internet. It's, you know, it's a million things that are great about it. But I think, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe what I need to do, um, you know, the great thing about, I, I talked about Fred, uh, Scott Engel and I made a couple of trades in, in Tout Wars. The great thing about those guys is when you email them, it almost feels like a conversation because if you catch them at the right time, you end up emailing each other in, almost in real time, and that's terrific. But I think maybe if I want to be a better trader in future seasons, I need to make more trades on the phone. I need to have a more direct line of communication and just get a better sense of it, you know, whether it's knowing the person as a person or getting a better sense of what their fantasy philosophy is or what their team. I, mean, I, I can do an audit from my perspective, but maybe just get a sense of how they feel. Is there a team they like? Is, is there a direction they see their team going under? Is there you know, something that I don't understand? I mean, it's all about relationships. It's all about trying to have an understanding of what the other guy, how he thinks, and how to find a way that you can make both of you feel satisfied. Well, I mentioned that you had the six trade partners you meet in hell. I'd like to get you to describe a couple of them at least, uh, and I'm sure everybody listening is going to recognize these guys in their leagues right now. Uh, how should owners respond to or think about, and I'm quoting the guy you call, the guy who thinks three fours equal a ten? <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? You know, he, he wants to trade three players he's picked up for Mookie Betts. Um I mean, there are some leagues, if you were, you know, American League only tout, that might make sense to trade a star for three pieces that play all the time because it's just so hard to get any kind of playing time. But in any, most of the work I do is aimed at mixed leagues, and those trades are never going to make sense. And what I generally say when somebody tries to pitch me that is, you know, I think we all know that in, in this format, it, it's better to have the best player in the trade. It's not about, you know, the two or three guys that you just picked up or, or an eyelash over replacement value. And, and if you don't agree with me, then let me give you three of my fours, and then I'll trade for one of your tens. But uh, usually when somebody offers me something like that, I just kind of wink and say, you know, come on. We all know that those types of trades favor the better players, and it, there's no point trying to trade three guys who are you know, barely over free agent replacement value and think you're getting a star back. I think most players with any sophistication realize that that's obviously true. And you have another kind that you call the manifesto writer. And I have to confess, I think I might be one of those guys. And from what you said earlier, you might be too. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes some people argue a little bit too much. Uh, and and they, they, it becomes a two or three page uh, discussion on why this is such a great trade for you. And a lot of times the manifesto writer, he almost tries to frame it like he's really doing you a favor. You know, like his improvement isn't even part of the objective. He's just trying to help you out. And he wants to make sure that you know um, 
I don't know, that Jeff Hoffman has a 2.4 ERA. Of course, he doesn't have it anymore or whatever, something like that. But I think sometimes the manifesto writers, this isn't you by any means, but sometimes they can be a little bit condescending or sometimes they can they think they're going they're going to passionately argue something so much they're going to talk people into trades. And I, I think most people, the, the harder you push with a, a really long couple of paragraphs, I think it's counterproductive. I think it puts people on guard. You've talked a lot on this program, and it's so great. Um, some of the philosophy uh, and the emotional ways we, we make decisions and how it can be really intimidating to have too many choices. And I think when you send somebody a trade offer that starts to read more, like it's a really complex question, I think you can kind of bump people offline and, and get them where they're more likely to put two hands on their assets and they're thinking, okay, if he's going to these lengths to try to justify this, he's trying to talk me into something. He's trying to put something over on me. I think it... Even if it isn't meant that way, I think sometimes it comes off a little disingenuous. I actually wrote a column on this same sort of theme back for Baseball HQ, I think 2006 maybe, and I had the six the six trading types. I organized them somewhat differently than you did. and uh, But one of them was called, I called him the Ramanujan, and Ramanujan is a Indian mathematician, a self-taught mathematician who, who's the, maybe the greatest mathematician in history. And I said, if you can get two Ramanujans together, you're going to make deals, and they're going to be pretty good deals because they're just logical. To them, these players are like chess pieces. They don't care about who they are, what teams they're on, how they're doing right now. It's all about the categories. It's all about the logic of the deal. Unfortunately, everybody else doesn't like that. They want to, They want names. They want uh, excitement. They, they don't see the categories as well. And so if you're a manifesto writer or a, or a Ramanujan with this logical approach, you'd think it would be great. And it is great if there's somebody else in your league like that. But otherwise, it's not so good. You also hit on a key point there that a lot of times when we're trying to get deals done, it's really about the manipulation of the categories and the stat pools and where you can gain and lose points. And it's important to keep that in mind, especially at this point of the season where the standings have enough personality and shape to them that it it can be perfectly reasonable to be losing a trade, quote-unquote, on paper in a vacuum but you see it's going to improve you because you're, you're trading a relief pitcher and you're miles ahead in saves, you know, but you're getting stolen bases where there's a pack of seven or eight teams and, and just adding one impact player maybe could raise you several points. Or as we get later in the season, it can be really specific sometimes where sometimes you'll make a trade that will help another team, which will hurt a, a different team, which will help you. So it's, it's not always about it, trades. Everything, of course, has to be contextual. And I don't think I'm telling people anything they don't know but it gets even more and more of a context argument when we get later in the season and you're not so much trying to quote-unquote win the trade or you know look better on paper but you're just trying to manipulate the categories in a way that are favorable to you or maybe unfavorable to somebody you're trying to compete with still amazing to me though how many people just don't see that and if you make them a trade they'll always buy it if you give up the better player because you want the lesser player but who has more effect on the standings but if and of course they'll jump on that because it's a bigger name they win the trade and they benefit but if it's a, if you want the the better player and are offering the lesser player it's very difficult to make that deal uh, you're listening to baseball HQ radio Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports and Scott uh, on Twitter you noted that while you like Joe Madden his decision to keep batting Anthony Rizzo lead off is not string theory. I thought that was a pretty funny way of putting. What did you mean? I don't. I like Joe Madden. I like him a lot, but I don't think as a baseball populist we're at any risk of underrating him. 
think Joe Madden likes to remind us every once in a while that he's Joe Madden, that he's you know kind of a outside the box thinker and, and all that stuff. And look, Anthony Rizzo is a great hitter. You, you, there's been a lot of study that says that maybe your best hitter in a lineup. That, first of all, the studies have, have found that lineup optimization isn't probably as important as, as we've thought it has been all these years. But maybe your best hitter should hit second. You want to hit him first because he gets on base because. You know, the Schwarber thing went so poorly. Maybe you want to get a jump on teams. It looks really good because Rizzo's hit a bunch of home runs out of the leadoff spot and a bunch of home runs leading off games. But Anthony Rizzo, if he hits first, if he hits second, if he hits third, if he hits fourth, I don't think it really matters that much. I mean, the point is he's a one of your best offensive players. And this is a Cubs lineup that isn't as deep 1-8 to eight or 1-9 to nine as maybe we thought it was going to be. The idea of getting Anthony Rizzo up a bunch of times in a baseball game is good, no matter where you do it. I just think we're in a position sometimes where Madden, and there's so many managers people can't stand. You know, Joe Sheehan, a mutual friend of ours, just did a ranking of the managers 1 through 30. And I'm sure a lot of people probably read that and said, that guy's 14th, that guy's 16th, but there just aren't that many guys we feel good about. In the case of Madden, I do think he's a good manager, but sometimes I think he can be cute to a point that, that actually hurts the team. Like I look at Ian Happ, uh, one of their highly touted young players who only recently started to hit. And they've been playing him at second base, and they've been playing him at left field, they've been playing him at center field, and sometimes in a game he'll bounce from position to position. And I think Ian Happ would probably be best served if they gave him one thing to do. He knew what he was expected, uh, what was expected of him, especially if you know, infield and outfield back and forth. This isn't Ben Zobrist, who's played baseball for 15 years. This is Ian Happ trying to establish himself as a bona fide major league player. Don't ask him to do four or five different things in the field. Give him one you know, specific assignment as a defensive player. Let him focus on his hitting and let him get settled a little bit. I, and I wonder if maybe that will happen now that Schwarber's gone. Maybe Hap will settle in as the left fielder. I actually think moving Hap from infield to outfield is really a mistake. I, I, I think uh, the Cubs are a smart team. Theo Epstein's really smart. Jed Hoyer's really smart and all those guys. And Madden's really smart too. But I think in the case of Hap, I think they'd be better served if they just found a position he could focus on where he didn't have his head spinning on all the different defensive things he might be asked to do. And, again, it's a lot of times in the same game. You know, give him one job and let him focus on that. Yeah, that makes a, a ton of sense. Uh, I know you mentioned Dave Roberts as well, a guy who gets cute with the lineup card. Uh, but in general, Scott, when you're looking at these managers, how much weight do you assign to players that, that is their value? You look at a player, do you consider who his manager is and who his team is when you're making roster decisions? Should I make a bid? Should I make a deal? How much weight does the manager and the, maybe to, to a lesser extent the organization have in your view of a player's value? It's on the margins. It's never going to be a primary thing because you know the player's ability is the first thing we care about where he is on the trajectory of his career, but you can't produce if you're not playing and you're not going to produce as much if you're not in a good lineup spot. I think it's somebody, I know he's hurt right now, but I think it's somebody like Colton Wong who's been jerked around all by the Cardinals. He was in the minors, he was in the majors, he was all over the batting order, sometimes in a really good spot, sometimes in a low spot. He was an infielder, he was an outfielder. They can't decide. They can't pick a lane with Colton Wong. They can't. And, and Wong has gotten kind of snippy at times about how he's been frustrated with how he's been treated by the Cardinals. Just file this away. When Colton Wong is eventually another team, and I think it's going to probably be next year, where you know in the off season at some point he's traded or you know moved somewhere 
or maybe the Cardinals just got sick of him and cut him. I, I wouldn't do that because he's got talent. But I don't think Colton Wong's going to be a Cardinal much longer. And now he's hurt now, so it's kind of a moot point. I will tell you this. When he's on a new team, I don't care what team it is, I'm going to have Colton Wong somewhere. Because I think he's been screwed up and jerked around and messed up so much with his organization and his bad blood on both sides. I just think he needs a clean start. He needs somebody who's going to, is going to say, hey, you know, you're our second baseman. You're going to bat in this spot, whatever. We're going to leave you alone and, and just see what you can do. He's still a pretty young player. He's got a really nice skill base, too. Get Colton Wong when he's not a Cardinal anymore. I was thinking also about the uh, this idea of having your leadoff hitter hit ho- uh, leadoff home runs is somehow optimal, and it seems to me that you'd be a lot better off if he was batting third or fourth and ha- had guys in front of him. You'd just get more runs that way. Uh, uh, when you, if you think about organizations, you mentioned uh, the Cardinals, but that may be just a specific thing with a specific guy. In a more general sense, which managers would be at the top of your list? to add value to players because you like the way that they, they run their teams. Terry Francona was at the top of that Joe Sheehan manager list. And I would sign off on that too. Uh, it's a mix of, yeah, I think of, I, I talked about Texas, so how they've been quick to, to sometimes go to different closers. I, I don't think Jeff Vanster has any patience with his players. And I think players want to know what their role is. And I think players want to know when they, demonstrate a certain value to a team i think they want to know that okay i own this position and i'm going to play every day and i'll probably hit in this part of the order i think those things have value i don't think i don't think you can manage a baseball team optimally and treat it like a strat team or you know a simulation team where the players have no personalities at all and no feelings at all and they don't care where they hit don't even know where they hit because they're just a you know a numbers in an algorithm or their numbers on a card i think players want to know what their roles are and, and want to know what's expected of them. And I, I think Francona handles the both being a smart tactical manager, but also being a, a great handler of personalities. I think he's head and shoulders above everybody else right now. Who's on the other end of the spectrum for you? There's a lot of guys who I don't like, but I think of what Terry Collins is doing in New York, and I know he's kind of had a raw deal because all their pitchers have gotten hurt. To the joke that uh, Thomas Boswell, a long-running columnist of the Baltimore paper said uh, maybe being a pitcher for the Mets is a pre-existing condition but think of how Collins how quickly he soured on Michael Conforto a couple of years ago and then Conforto has this great breakout year now and then he's on the bench again and it's the Mets team that's going nowhere and yet Collins thinks it's more important to get Curtis Grandison in the lineup when if I ran the Mets I think this season's shot Let's develop our young players. Let's develop. Let's let, let's expose Michael Conforto to all different kinds of pitching. Let's see if he can develop against left-handed pitching. Let's see if he's a cornerstone player for us. We know who Curtis Granderson is. We know that Curtis Granderson is near the end of his career. I, I mean, maybe I guess maybe they're trying to spotlight him because they want to trade him or something. But the way they've handled Conforto from the moment he came up, I think, has been a joke. And I know that you can't always be sure it's the manager. I mean, you know, maybe it's the GM, maybe it's the owner, maybe it's somebody else in the baseball organization who's, who's calling those shots. But Terry Collins, I, I can't watch a Mets game without thinking, why is he doing that? I have the same reaction a lot of times to St. Louis games, and I wonder if I think Mike Matheny's a pretty bad manager. Last on the Sheehan list, by the way. Uh, I'm not surprised. He seems like he makes a lot of decisions that just make you scratch your head. And then maybe this, uh, this approach to dealing with a, a, perhaps a player who has a, you know, is a bit difficult to manage. Perhaps we, I don't know Colton Wong, but maybe he's just one of those guys who's like prickly, you know, and, and some people just react badly to other people. And there could be something to that. 
I know this could be coincidence, but isn't it interesting that Matt Adams has gone crazy in Atlanta? Sure it is. Away from Mike Matheny, maybe it helped Matt, Matt Adams. Yeah, that could very well be. Uh, before we leave this topic, uh, Scott, when we think about teams more generally, we're getting to that time of year where there's a lot of trade talk, there's a lot of teams being analyzed and are they buyers, are they sellers? Looks like the entire American League could be buyers and virtually none of the National League could be could be selling. I mean, all of the National League could be selling. How best can a fantasy owner play out this whole waiting and watching situation while looking at the Major League clubs and all of the various trade possibilities? Is there a way to exploit it? I mean, all you can do is just apply common sense and constantly be aware of what a team's objective is. And, and it can be, it doesn't always, you know, with, it can be different things. I mean, you look at the situation Houston's in, where they're 12 and a half games up on uh, Seattle is in second place in the AL West. That division sure looks over. And what is Houston doing? Uh, McCullers nicked up a little bit. He's on the DL. Keiko probably hurt a little bit more seriously. He's been on the DL for like a month now. This is a team that is already essentially in the playoffs, and they're, I think, taking correctly the long view approach to that team. Um, you have to kind of guess. I mean, you know, what when uh, the Royals are four games out in the AL Central right now, at what point do they decide maybe they're in it or not in it? If they weren't in it, you know, you have guys like Lorenzo Cain and Eric Hosmer coming up on free agency. I, I think Cain's a free agent next year. Hosmer's either next year or the year after. But these guys are at the end. Of, I think Moustakas might be another one near the end of his contract. I can't imagine a scenario, unless the Royals think they can go for one more push. I think at some point they really have to think about trading some of these guys. It's just To me, it's just common sense. Know where teams sit in the standings. Um, it can work with injured players, right? I mean, when when I saw Bumgarner and I saw Syndergaard get hurt and I saw how poorly their teams were playing, my initial thought was, well, I don't know why these teams would rush these guys back. They're really high-priced talent. Um, they're not going to go anywhere this year. Why Why would you – why do you need – I mean, I, I know the players, you know, they want to put stats up. They, they you know, In the case of Syndergaard, he's still in the early part of his contract life and, and stuff like that. He wants to make money. Uh, I know Bumgarner has, I believe, has a long-term contract, so it's maybe not much of an issue there. But uh, if a team isn't going anywhere, do they rush an injured player back, or does they do they just say, "Well, we want you for 2018"? I'm curious to see how the Angels handle Mike Trout. I mean, they're 13 games out in the ALS. They're, they're. I, I guess they could think of themselves as cosmetically in the playoff hunt for the wild card. I don't see it. Does that ha- does that handle who they decide to close with? Does that handle? have a say in how quickly Trout comes back or what they expose him to, or even if they play him every day. I mean, if I ran the Angels, I, I would take my time with Trout. I would I would also, I need to get hit for PR in this, I would be open to trading Trout if somebody would give you a mother load of stuff. Um, it sure have to be a lot. But maybe somebody has that right type of deal. But um, anyway, it's just common sense to me. Where is the team in the standings, uh, what are the personalities of, of the GM or the organization? You know, what's the shape of the ownership? I mean, before Mike Yelich died, it was so obvious he wanted to push all his chips in, try to get Detroit to a World Series. Uh, they never won a title. They, he won a lot of hockey championships, but never won a baseball title. So you could always at least, you, you knew where the Tigers stood and what their approach was. If they were anywhere close to being in it, they'd probably be buyers because, you know, Illich knew he wasn't going to be around that much longer, and he badly wanted to win. So it's just, to me, just common sense. Try to get a sense of how does the manager think, how does the organization think, and what is the team's philosophy for the rest of the season and maybe the next few seasons. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, we're in the home stretch here. During the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players who get their thumbs up or thumbs down for the rest of the year. Any rationale is fine. Obviously, we don't need to know that, uh, you know, uh, Max Scherzer's a thumbs up. Kind of obvious. So we're looking for maybe a little more uh, offbeat kind of suggestions. Let's start with the thumbs up guys in the American League. Who's a hitter you think deserves the Scott Pianowski thumbs up for the rest of the year? I'll give you a couple of guys. Cameron Mabin to me is only risky because of his injury history. I think a lot of people don't realize how good he was last year, albeit in about 100 games or so, getting on base about 38% of the time. He's the leading base dealer in the American League. He's only been caught once. This is only, what, 56, 57 games that he's played. To me, Mabin does have injury risk, but I think there's no performance risk with him. I think that when he's on the field, he's going to be a dynamic player. And while the injury risk is not going to go away, I'm more inclined to believe what he's doing is real than I think maybe a lot of other people are. Uh, For a less on-the-radar guy, I like what Lonnie Chisenhall has done since he came back from his concussion and the Indians are one of the best offenses in the league over the last three or four weeks as some of their guys have kind of come out of it. We've seen Encarnacion has started to hit. Chisinau, just being in a good lineup, uh, I think he's going to be around a 300 hitter the rest of the way and probably going to play every day, and he's still really lowly owned in a lot of mixed leagues. I think Chisinau you could probably add for free here and there. In a mixed league, for sure. Uh, Lonnie Chisenhall, the one worry I have, and I own him in, in Tout American League. I got him for a buck at the end of the auction, which I thought was a, a huge steal, and it turned out he's uh, he's one of the guys who's benefiting from whatever's causing home runs t- to go up. His uh, home runs per 650 plate appearances is skyrocketing. The thing I like about Mabin, too, is uh, all those stolen bases. He's at 22 now. If he keeps going at this rate, he could finish close to, what, 50, maybe? And uh, that kind of thing can really move you in the category. In the National League, who's a hitter that gets your thumbs up? I talked about Ian Happ. I think with Schwarber down, I think he'll probably settle in as their left fielder, and he's been really hitting the ball well for maybe the last seven or ten days. He had four hits the other night. Uh, Has a really nice pedigree. Was one of their well-regarded prospects. I think it's a good time to get in on Happ. Matt Carpenter's been a disappointment this year, but he seems to be more comfortable in that leadoff spot. He always has great hard-hit metrics, but his hard hit rate doesn't match up with his BABIP. I will always bet on the hard hit contact. And I, I think Matt Carpenter, I just traded for him in Tout. And I, I didn't get him cheap, but I traded three three to get one. And I know it's not always easy to make a trade like that, but I was happy to do it. I'd be very surprised if Matt Carpenter, remember, he was a little dinged up in spring too. Maybe that led to his poor start to the season. I think he's going to be back to the all-star level, Matt Carpenter, in the second half. We talked about Ian Happ in the National League coverage with Nick Nichols at the start of the show, and uh, one thing he mentioned that was a bit of a concern is the low batting average, and uh, he's a little under what we'd expect in that department, but he's not making a ton of real hard contact, and his contact rate overall is only about 64%. So uh, are you worried about the batting average when you look at Ian Happ? You have to, but at least he's he's hitting the ball out of the park too, and it just seems to fit the shape of where baseball is today. And I wonder, again, I, I really think, I know this is anecdotal and you know, I don't know Ian Happ personally, but I really think now that Schwarber's out of the way, I, I, I think there's a good chance Happ settles in and, and feels like he has a defined role on this team. I think that could help him. Maybe looking over his shoulder a little bit because they seem to be calling up uh, every outfielder they can find. Uh, in the American League, who's a pitcher? You get the thumbs up. Uh, American League pitcher. I, I talked about the... Texas bullpen earlier, and, and Kella is the guy I'm going to bet on, although Leclerc is really good if you need strikeouts. 
I don't think Matt Bush is going to be their closer for the full season. And in the National League, who's a pitcher that gets the thumbs up? You know, sometimes it takes bigger pitchers more time to develop. And, and Jimmy Nelson you know, had some pedigree and, and had some expectations when he first came up to Milwaukee. And gradually he's gotten a little bit better and a little bit better. And right now he's pitching like an ace. I think everybody knows that maybe Jimmy Nelson is like a top 40 pitcher the rest of the way, but I think he's better than that. I think he's actually like a top 20 pitcher the rest of the way, in part just because pitching is such a mess right now. I mean, so many guys are hurt. Or so many guys are just, you know, ERAs over five or they can't keep the ball in the park. I think it's somebody like Maeda, who I really liked in L.A. He's not even in the rotation anymore, although I think eventually he'll get pushed back when somebody gets hurt or is ineffective. But still, I mean, he's been a huge disappointment. Jimmy Nelson is a set-and-forget circle of trust. Look forward to actually watching him pitch. So many guys you might want to own, but you can't watch them. You're just nervous they're going to blow up. Jimmy Nelson looks like a stud to me. Another nationally pitcher I do like, this kid Vizcaino in Atlanta, who was briefly their closer in the past. Uh, Jim Johnson's been their closer of late, but nine of the 12 – Last Johnson appearances have not been clean. He's allowed at least a hit or a walk, and a lot of those appearances, he's allowed runs. Mid-30s now for Johnson, and Braves aren't going anywhere. I think they're going to try to see if they can trade some of those guys who aren't maybe in the long-term plan. I think this game will be worth owning anyway for the really good ratios, but I think there's a fair chance if Johnson were to go or just to continue to struggle, that Vizcaino could be a closer in the second half, too. I really like Jimmy Nelson as well, and uh, Vizcaino does look like a good uh, sleeper bet to get some saves. Uh, I've had Jim Johnson in the past, <laughs> and uh, believe me, I know what the downside is there. So uh, Scott Pianowski's thumbs up, guys. Cameron, Mabin, Lonnie, Chisenhall, Ian Happ, Keone Kayla, Jimmy Nelson, and Arotis Vizcaino. Let's move to the thumbs down players. These are guys about whom you are not optimistic for the rest of the year and about whom you think listeners should be cautious. And again, let's start in the American League with a hitter. I think he's probably obvious, but Carlos Beltran at age 40, I don't see anything left. I don't think he's going to hit for an average. He's not even getting on base 30% of the time. No defensive value. And Houston, this is a team that thinks they can go all the way. I don't. Beltran, I believe, is on a one-year deal. I don't think they're going to be married to him. And we started to see some other guys. Marisnik is hit. Gonzalez plays all over the place. They called up one of their prospects for a while who was hitting. I think they're going to move on from him. Now, in a mixed league, you can just cut Beltran, or maybe he's just unowned in a mixed league. But I I wouldn't even feel safe in the American League-only league. If you get somebody who just saw well, Carlos Beltran, good Houston lineup, you know, maybe this is expecting a, a low-level sophistication in your league because maybe people are going to see through that. I'll give you another guy I don't like as far as what his perceived value may be. And I actually just bought this guy in Tout Wars, so I'm going to sound like a total hypocrite. But the Rays brought up Malik Smith. And they've hit him leadoff, and they've hit him sixth or seventh. And sometimes he doesn't play. I thought they were just going to play him and let him bat first and let him run all over the place because what do they care, you know? But they seem to be jerking him around, and I don't know why they'd ever want to bat him seventh. Either bat him first or bat him last. I don't see what batting him in the middle of the lineup does. I don't think they view him as an everyday player. Sometimes he takes some wild swings. He's, he's run into some outs on the bases. He tried to steal home plate. Detroit didn't work out. I wonder if maybe that got under the management skin because he came up and had such a big splash in that first weekend it's probably somebody who, who sees the pretty average who, who sees what his high you know uh, potential is for stolen bases i just get the sense maybe i also this is like a totally kooky theory but i think when somebody has a weird name i think sometimes that adds to their cachet a little bit you know everybody knows who you're talking about when you say malik's I, I think he may be a little bit overrated in a lot of leagues right now beltran's a pretty obvious pick 
I think it's a good time to shop Malik Smith. Sell high is the uh, mantra in a lot of leagues. People always say you should do it. Not many people know how. Uh, definitely a, a sell high candidate. Uh, how about a National League hitter with the thumbs down? We talked about him a little bit earlier. I hate to say it because I love Michael Conforto, but I don't trust the Mets. I don't trust Terry Collins. They have too many outfielders now, and they really don't want Jay Bruce to play first base. Maybe things clear up. Eventually somebody gets hurt or or somebody gets traded, but I just think that the Mets are jerking around Conforto. He hasn't been producing. I'm worried that he's going to have a big slip in the second half. Yeah, I think he could lose his job. I think Terry Collins just doesn't like him for some reason or that I don't understand. But it, it does seem very, very strange to me. Uh, how about a pitcher in the American League gets your thumbs down? Man, he, he's so much fun to watch. He's so talented. But Lance McCullers has never gone deep in a season, and the Astros are already in the playoffs, and they know it. They put him on the, on the DL. He skipped a start. Sounds like he's going to be back soon. But I don't think he's gone over 160 or 165 innings in any season. The Astros are not going to push this guy. They know they need him in October. So when McCullers comes back and invariably has a great game and the consumer confidence rebounds a little bit, I would try to cash out on him. I, I, I'm not making clear what I'm saying. I'm not saying, God, get rid of McCullers. Trade him at all costs. Take the first offer. No, none of that. I just think he's a pitcher that people really like. And I think once he comes back and has a good game or two, and I believe in his ability, I think you might be able to get out and then you don't have to have any of that risk of how Houston is going to take the second half. Because I just think this team is going to be August, I'm sorry, October focused for the rest of the year. And if McCullers has any kind of a hiccup, he's going to be back on the DL. Lance McCullers, 209 major league innings in the last two years. So I think you're right about uh, the injury risk there and uh, Houston's management risk as well. Uh, National League pitcher gets the thumbs down? I know there are different reasons to like Aaron Nola, but part of it was he was hurt last year in the second half. But you look at his stats over the last year, his year is around five. A little bit too gopher-friendly for my liking. I know he pitched really well this week. I've seen people rank him as, as high as a top 20, top 25 pitcher for the rest of the way. And to me... He And I know it's a year where we're all scraping for pitching, so I, I think he's borderline trustable in the mixed league. I, I don't even think I have I would use him on any of my contending teams. I, for some reason, people like Aaron Nola. There are some writers and, and analysts out there who really like him, and I just think it's all on spec. I, I know ERA isn't a perfect stat, but it's the one we use. And, and his, you know his ERA has been too high for my liking uh, for most of the past year. Scott Pianowski's thumbs down players, Carlos Beltran, Malik Smith, Michael Conforto, Lance McCullers, and Aaron Nola. Gee, Scott, this has been a gas. As always, it's such fun to talk with you about baseball and fantasy baseball. Tell our listeners where they can read more from you. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm on the Yahoo Fantasy blog, Roto Arcade, and I'm on Twitter um, pretty much every day for a decent chunk of the day, Scott underscore Pianowski. And we can talk anything you want. We can talk football, baseball, any sport, really, soccer golf um we'll talk music talk life you know food whatever um if if you want to talk baseball that's great if you want to talk about something else um i have a lot of different interests and a lot of things that i think are fun to talk about we want to talk movies we talked about days being confused earlier so um i'll leave it up to you um my my twitter account is open i I like to engage with with readers i I learn a lot from from the people who follow me and and who comment on my articles i mean not everybody is great but uh, i've made a lot of friends that way and learned a lot from from the readers as well and the listeners as well so let's talk man let's would you pick the subject and uh, let's have a discussion 
Well, I'm a Twitter follower, and boy, Scott, you have a terrific sense of humor on Twitter and a sense of immediacy and a vi- vibrant way of getting 140 characters to say a lot. So a treat, well, treat following you on Twitter, and it was, of course, a terrific treat having you here on Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Uh, I appreciate those words, and um, I always say this, this is the best show to be on, Patrick, because uh, you are the best host and, and best question asker and best follow-up question asker that I know of in this business. And, and I listen to this podcast pretty much every week, and, and it's because of you and the professional job you do. So it's, it's an honor to be here, and um, just thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Scott Pianowski writes at the Roto Arcade blog at Yahoo Sports and has a terrific Twitter uh, account that you should really follow. Coming up next, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. Holy cow, all this content so far and still so much good content to come on Baseball HQ Radio. First, let me tell you about why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have all kinds of great content, and here's just a few examples. In playing time today this week, the returns of Homer Bailey and Houston Street, the release of Doug Fister, and all kinds of roster moves, Seattle, the Mets, Atlanta, Miami, and more. In the Big Hurt Injury Analysis column, Matt Cederholm looks at injuries to Michael Brantley, Zach Cozart, J.J. Hardy, and, unfortunately, many more. And in a free bullpen buyer's guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at the holds leaderboard. These are the guys you need to know about. There's so much more fantasy intelligence for winners at the Baseball HQ site. There are all the articles, of course, but also the roster tools, the HQ subscriber forums, and when you add it all up, it's why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at A's pitching prospect, A.J. Puck, is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst, Rob Gordon. The Oakland A's, A.J. Puck, continues to be one of the most dominant and yet divisive prospects in the American League. Heading into his junior year at the University of Florida, the hard-throwing lefty had established himself as a potential candidate to go first overall in the 2016 draft. But an inconsistent season and an inability to throw strikes on a consistent basis caused Puck to slide out of the top five, and the A's nabbed him with the sixth overall pick. Puck had a solid pro debut last year, going 0-4 with a 3.03 ERA, with 12 walks and 40 strikeouts and 32 innings pitched at rookie ball. But scouts continue to question his long-term viability as a starter. 2017 has been more of the same, and after 11 starts, the 22-year-old is 4-5 with a 3.69 ERA. He's walked 23 and struck out 98 in 61 innings. At his best, Puck comes after hitters with a 75-grade heater that sits at 94-97, to topping out at 98 miles an hour. He backs up the heater with a power slider, giving him a devastating 1-2 punch. Unfortunately, he lacks an effective third offering, though his changeup has shown much improvement this year. The development of an effective changeup will determine A.J. Puck's future with the A's. If he can refine his mechanics, throw more strikes, and develop a consistent off-speed offering, he has the power stuff from the left-hand side to develop into a viable number 2 starter. If not, he could be moved into a relief role where his fastball-slider combination give him the stuff to pitch at the back end of the bullpen. Fantasy owners looking for a high-risk, high-reward prospect should look no further than A.J. Puck. And for those willing to roll the dice, he could return a significant amount on a small investment. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes Chris Blessing's articles about prospects making the big jump up this year to be top prospects for next year. He also has some in-person coverage of Atlanta Braves prospects. Our call-ups coverage includes reports on potential Reds ace Luis Castillo, Cubs outfielder Mark Zagunas. We talked about him a little while ago with Nick Nichols, San Francisco right-hander Kyle Crick, and many more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at Wilson Ramos's imminent return and a possible Ahmed Rosario call-up. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. This week, we'll take a quick hit approach at a few newsworthy items in our Playing Time Tomorrow space from the past week. First in Tampa Bay, and second over in Queens. Chris Olson covered the changing Tampa Bay Rays lineup in his AL East Playing Time Tomorrow column, noting that Wilson Ramos's rehab is moving along quite well down in AAA Durham. Ramos has missed the entire year due to offseason knee surgery, but he's catching back-to-back games in his rehab stint, and he could be back as soon as this Sunday, June 25th. Fifth. Ramos's return could be a boon for the Rays and fantasy owners as he hit over 300 with 22 home runs in a career year 2016. And it came along with some pretty solid underlying skills. Ramos had a 280 expected batting average, above average power index, and impressive bat to ball skills with an 84% contact rate. Ramos's return might signal an end to the Derek Norris experiment in Tampa as he's hitting below the Mendoza line for the second straight season. The Rays will ease Ramos back into action, but if he can rediscover last season's skills, Ramos is in for some good numbers behind the dish. And over to the National League, Greg Pyron wondered, along with a lot of Mets fans, when the team might call up top prospect and shortstop Ahmed Rosario. The Mets spurned Rosario in favor of Gavin Sacchini, with starters Estrubal Cabrera and Neil Walker recently going down due to injury. Rosario was our number 12 fantasy prospect on the preseason HQ100 with a 9C prospect rating thanks to his dynamic hit tool and plus speed on the base paths. Rosario spent the season at AAA Las Vegas, where inflated offense should be taken with a grain of salt, but he's hitting 325 with 12 steals through nearly 300 at-bats, and Rosario has little left to prove in the minors at this point. We certainly have no control over when the Mets might promote Ahmed Rosario, but they're running out of other options. Their percentage play is still to expect a call sometime this summer, so if you have room on your bench to stash an upside batting average and steal source for later this year, see if Rosario is available in your redraft leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for the site and has his playing time commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers include prospect Ahmed Rosario and Seattle starting pitcher Andrew Moore, 
And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. As June comes to an end, it's now officially time to bring your A-game. For the New York Mets, I may mean promoting top prospect Ahmed Rosario, who is the first of two frequent flyers that will profile this week. Despite bagging 322 with seven home runs and 13 steals through 70 games for AAA Las Vegas, a promotion to the Mets may not be imminent. For all we know at this point, Ahmed Rosario could be a September call-up at best. That's why Ahmed Rosario, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be log shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. On the other hand, the Mets appear to be ready to move Asdrubal Cabrera to second base when he is activated from the disabled list on Friday, June 23rd. And, of course, we already know that 34-year-old Jose Reyes, who is currently batting 193 through 69 games, is fully capable of playing at either third or short. Could these moves be designed to create space for Ahmed Rosario at shortstop? Greg Pyron, in the June 19th edition of Plague Time Tomorrow on BaseballHQ.com, speculated that the Mets might soon alter their thinking regarding the shortstop position when Asdrubal Cabrera returns. Greg goes on to say that even if Cabrera is ready to return on or around June 23rd, we would be surprised if Rosario didn't make it to Flushing at some point later this summer. This situation certainly bears watching, according to Greg, and we couldn't agree more. Speaking of situations worth watching, the Seattle Mariners' new 23-year-old starter, Andrew Moore, dazzled his Major League debut on Thursday, June 22nd, against the Detroit Tigers, allowing three runs on six hits while striking out four in seven innings pitched. The former second-round draft pick by the Mariners in 2015, 72nd overall, posted a 4-3 record with a 2.72 ERA through 13 starts of the Miners in 2017, including eight starts at AAA Tacoma. According to our own Jeremy Deloney in the June 22nd edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com, Andrew Moore is very polished. He has found success with moving the ball around the strike zone and sequencing his average arsenal in an advanced fashion. He effectively adds and subtracts from his 88-93 to mile-per-hour fastball, and he locates it with precision. However, Andrew Moore's best pitch, according to Jeremy, is a changeup that is thrown with deceptive arm speed. In addition, Nick Richards, as June 19th Miners column on BaseballHQ.com, says that Andrew Moore has been a consistently efficient pitcher level after level. In other words, Andrew Moore has gotten an A for effort. And you can too when you consider adding both Ahmed Rosario and Andrew Moore, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong starts. Ratings of minus one or worse, strong bets to sit. Between the ones are the wild cards. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including Arizona right-hander Zach Greinke, Cubs left-hander John Lester, and all the other pitchers, here's matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. Our marquee matchup features the largest matchup rating differential of the weekend at 3.30. Philadelphia's Jeremy Hellickson comes into Arizona with a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 2.36. To say Hellickson has been disappointing this season is an understatement. 
His PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 7% dominant to 60% disaster. In fact, disaster is a more apt description of Helixon's season thus far. But the term disappointing does apply to our marquee matchup man's past season. In 2016, Zach Grenke put up eight-year worsts in eight categories. ERA and expected ERA, whip, on-base average against, velocity, home runs per nine, home runs per fly ball, and fantasy values. Everything is much better for Grenke this season. In 2016, he spent all of July on the DL and finished with August and September BPVs of 84 and 39. The league average base performance value is 83, and for starting pitchers, we consider 100 and above outstanding. Grenke's 2017 April, May, and June BPVs are 144, 180, and 164. In nine May and June starts, Grenke has five PQS dominance and one PQS disaster. Half of Grenke's eight home starts this season have been PQS dominant, including three of his past four. BaseballHQ.com Facts and Flukes columnist Greg Pyron analyzed Grenke's 2017 rebound on the site June 10th. He concluded, quote, Grenke has forcefully reclaimed ace status, unquote. Grenke's marquee matchup is against the less-than-formidable Philadelphia Phillies. In the latest USA Today power rankings, the Phils are dead last. Arizona is fifth. Philadelphia has the worst record in Major League Baseball, the worst record versus teams at or above 500, the worst record on the road, the worst record against right-handers, and the worst records over the past 10, 20, and 30 games. Arizona has the second-best home record, the second-best records over the past 10, 20, and 30 games, the third-best record against right-handers, and the third-best record versus teams under 500. Zach Grenke may not have a recommended start matchup rating at 094 against the Phillies, but he's our marquee matchup man for plenty of good reasons. Our Saturday surprise is saddled with a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 133 going into pitcher-friendly Marlins Park, and he has a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 152. We've already mentioned the Cubs' visit to Miami as one ripe for hitting heroics, but wait a minute. Chicago's John Lester was runner-up for the National League Cy Young Award last season. The 2016 World Series champion Cubs are still a top 10 team in the USA Today Power Rankings. They're 10th overall and 6th in the National League. The Marlins are 25th in the Majors and 11th in the National League. The 2017 Cubs are 5 games under 500 on the road, but they're 4 games over 500 versus left-handers and 8 games over 500 against teams under 500. With Chicago the better team, it is surprising to see John Lester carrying a recommended sit matchup rating in against Miami on Saturday. Let's look a little longer at Lester and see if he deserves to be avoided. Lester has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 27% dominant to 33% disaster. Of his six road starts, four have been PQS disasters. Lester is posting five-year worsts in nine skills metrics. ERA, whip, on-base average against, batters faced per game, control or walks per nine, first pitch strike rate, velocity, home runs per nine, and home runs per fly ball. He's showing four-year worsts in expected ERA, base performance value, and fantasy values. Most notably, Lester is allowing a career-worst OPS of 787 to right-handed batters this year, 96 points above his career average of 691. Surprising or not, it seems safer to sit John Lester this Saturday. Now that it's summer, we hope your teams get hot if they're not and stay hot if they are. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick writes about pitcher matchups, not surprisingly, at BaseballHQ.com. And he has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. 
Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about how to explain the home run surge. Home runs are way up again, and discussion about why is also way up again. But the reason seems obvious to me. For some time, I've been telling anyone who will listen, right up until his patience runs out, or the eulogy starts anyway, that the reason we're seeing so many home runs is that the ball is different, and fantasy owners need to figure out what to do about that. The numbers provide ample evidence that home runs are exploding. Through June 20th, Major League hitters had just over 2,700 home runs in about 81,000 plate appearances. That's about 22 home runs per 650 plate appearances, which is roughly a full season for an individual player. Last year, it was 20 home runs per 650 plate appearances. That's two extra home runs per player per season. Needless to say, these huge increases are affecting individual hitters and in a big way. So far this year, 34 hitters already have more home runs than they had all of last year, despite usually having far fewer plate appearances. Now, at the risk of giving the appetizer chefs at Outback a new idea, it's a tater barrage of historical proportions. If the home runs continue at this same pace, 2017 will finish with something like 6,140 home runs. That's 500 more than last year, a 10% increase. The resulting rate of 1.27 homers per game would be by far the highest in Major League history. In response to questions about the causes of the HR spike, Major League Baseball's response has been to issue a report that the ball is exactly the same as before, with detailed evidence that goes something like, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's not the ball, next question. Some people have alternate explanations, such as maybe they're using PEDs again, or it's been warmer this year, or Major League Baseball says it's not the ball and Major League Baseball always tells the truth. But I've been much more persuaded over these last couple of years by a lot of expert scientific analysis that points to the ball as the central reason for the significant power gains we've seen, especially since the All-Star break of last year. Recently, some new research has provided more evidence that the baseball is the main reason for the surge. Ben Lindbergh, who co-wrote some earlier studies with Rob Arthur of 538.com, has now written a follow-up study with the well-known analyst Mitchell Lichtman, a longtime sabermetrics ace and the author of the book, Playing the Percentages in Baseball. Their study was published at the Ringer website. It acknowledges that home run growth combines several factors, but it argues very effectively that the primary factor is the baseball. There are two main reasons. First, it's the coefficient of restitution. This sounds like something your payday lender hands you while he repossesses your car, but it actually refers to the amount of energy the ball has when it's bounced off of a hard surface. The coefficient of restitution of Major League Baseballs is higher this year than in the past. I'm not sure about the numerical values here, but apparently where it currently says Rawlings, maybe it should say Titleist. The second factor, the seams are less raised. This sounds like a small thing, and indeed, seam heights are measured in one thousandths of an inch. But these thousandths of inches are much more important to seam height than they would be for, say, inseam height. The ball's lower seams mean the batted ball encounters less air resistance in flight. It's also why you don't see stitching in Superman's tights. The Ringer article doesn't mention this, but it seems the phenomenon might also affect the movement on pitches, since differential air resistance is the reason pitches break. Less break, more hard contact. I've also been persuaded of this case by two of the experts I trust the most, my left eye and my right eye. 
Like you, I watch a lot of baseball and baseball highlights, and I've seen plenty of weirdness in home runs this year. Like Chris Carter. You see that one? He got fooled by a Drew Pomeranz pitch. It was well off the plate away. He lunges after it and pulls a one-handed home run into the seats and left. And not a cheapie either, 20 rows deep. I was actually watching Marwan Gonzalez live in a game when he hit what I thought was a can of corn to the outfield. He thought so too, and he slammed his bat to the ground in frustration. So we were both surprised when the ball cleared the center field fence. Marwin crossed the plate with that sheepish look, like a guy who shanked a three-wood out of bounds, but the ball hit a tree and ricocheted straight into the cup. Or maybe you saw the highlight of noted slugger Gerard Dyson launching a true missile 360 feet into the right field seats at Safeco Field. Dyson has four home runs this year in just 234 plate appearances, and this is after amassing the less-than-Bonzian total of seven home runs, in his previous 1,365 plate appearances. And there are tons more examples of players hitting for way more power this year. If you're like me, it seems like it's because most of them were on your team last year. I know it's tough to assess the probability of a fly ball going out when you're watching it on TV, but I've been watching baseball on TV for damn near 50 years, and you kind of get a feel for which balls look and sound like home runs and which ones don't. And this year, I have to say, I've been seeing and hearing a lot of those don'ts that somehow do. Really, the cause of the homer surge doesn't matter for fantasy owners. I say it's the ball, you say it's climate change. I know a guy who's sure it has something to do with Brexit. What does matter in the power surge is how the extra home runs are being distributed. The top home run guys, Nelson Cruz, Edwin Encarnacion, Nolan Arenado, are not getting more home runs from the lively ball. The big gainers are coming from lower down in the ranks. Your Yondro Alonzos, your Justin Smokes, your Lonnie Chisenhalls. I quickly compared the 241 hitters who had at least 250 plate appearances last year and at least 100 this year. I wanted to see which players are showing gains in their home runs per 650 plate appearances. I used the rate stat rather than just the home runs hit stat because I was more interested in finding hitters whose home run gains are not directly connected to their playing time. The top 30% in home runs per 650 last year as a group have lost ground this year. It's when you dig down into, the, say, the 7th decile that you find surging home run guys like Smoke, Sal Perez, and Marcel Ozuna, all big gainers in home run rate. Even down lower, in the 6th decile, Logan Morrison, Colby Rasmus, Michael Conforto likewise piling up the home runs at a higher rate. Down in the 5th decile, gainers like Ryan Zimmerman, Scott Schebler, Javier Baez. And down, down, down we go. Marwin Gonzalez of Houston, big story, he's in the bottom of the 4th decile, but he's on a pace to hit 40 if he gets 650 plate appearances. I mentioned Chisenhall, he's down in the 3rd decile, and Alonzo was way down in the 2nd decile in 2016, a paltry 9 home runs per 650 plate appearances. This year, if he gets 650 plate appearances, he's going to hit 50. It makes sense to me that guys like Alonzo, Morrison, and Smoke are getting the extra home runs while Encarnacion and Cruz aren't. The research suggests that the total distance benefit of the new, juicier ball is 6 to 10 feet on a well-hit ball. For the big boppers, that means their home runs go from being well out of the yard to way out of the yard. But those extra 10 feet make a ton of difference for hitters like Smoke and Morrison. I've had them both on past teams, and if warning track outs had been a category, I'd be up to my hips in trophies. Now, some reports have mentioned changes in these hitters' approach. 
Alonzo's well-publicized effort to change his swing plane to get more balls in the air and on a higher arc has been mentioned. Smoke reportedly said he spent the off-season training to relax more, be more patient at the plate, and to shorten his swing. Those adjustments almost certainly have something to do with this player's newfound successes, but even at that, it's got to help that the ball is just going farther when you hit it. It's hard to say how actionable the changed baseball will be for the future for fantasy owners. We have to believe that Major League Baseball could certainly require the manufacturer to return to previous standards for coefficient of resolution and seam height, taking us back to where we were in 2012 or so. If they don't, then we should expect the whole home run distribution to flatten out, with the top guys still in the high 30s, low 40s, but a whole bunch more in the low to mid 30s. That redistribution, more home runs overall, but spread across more players getting home runs, will certainly affect the value of home runs. It might even affect that value this year, if, for example, other owners continue to believe that Cruz is far more valuable for home runs than, say, Smoke is, because they think Smoke's just being fluky. In all, it's tough to say what we can do, beside mind the oldest adage in sports, keep your eye on the ball. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, a terrific fantasy analyst and writer, and a really nice guy in a business full of nice guys. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Getting close to that 1,000 follower mark, help me out. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. That's another Talk with Todd on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Mark your calendar. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.